Lights, camera, action. And welcome to another edition of Movie Madness in association with Spitballing Pod. I'm Luke Byron, joined this week by Tom Kennett. And the match that we'll be getting into today is 1992's Basic Instinct versus 1997's Con Air. TK, uh, no keen in this week. We did mention that last week, I believe. Um, but this was a matchup that caught your eye on the fixture list. Yeah, two just off-the-rails films. Uh, this will be interesting. Yeah. yeah, I actually had to go back and look through my notes to see which part of the bracket they fitted into, like which genre they came under, because it mm. genuinely could have been anything for a lot of these. If we basically it might be its own, fit. might be its own genre. It might have its entire genre to itself. I don't really. This could be the one that gets this pod cancelled. <laughs> well, when when you when you Google it and. Um, I mean, it's risky business doing that if you're anywhere outside of the house. There's all kinds of angry articles of people like Basic Instinct was the death of the erotic thriller. And these people, <laughs> it must have been like, if you like wiped out teen comedies and then we had to just go on and we just had to just talk about American Pie forevermore. I guess that's probably the case. Like, I didn't read the the articles to know whether it was done too well or if like the backlash was too much or or what. Um, it probably went to a uh, mainstream form, didn't it? If that was your, if like erotic sort of things like that are your thing, it probably just went, it's kind of early Kings of Leon. Sort of. I like the <laughs> early stuff. The sex on fire, not for me. It went too mainstream for him. Well, I, I can clarify here. I've got nothing to say about Basic Instinct 2 because I didn't know that was a thing until earlier today. And yeah, apparently it was horrible. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was going to say, by the merits of everyone else involved, I think it's best that you kind of pretend number two didn't happen. So mm. there we go. All right, news of the week, couple of headlines to kick us off with. So according to Judd Apatow, the Superbad sequel would have followed the duo to college. He says, I always wanted them to do a sequel to Superbad. I know that Jonah said, I ought to be funny to do one with 70 or 80, but I just really wanted them to do a Superbad in college where Jonah flunks out of college and just shows up and visits Michael Sarah while he's there. I mean, that would be what you do with it, isn't it? That, is, that seems the, pretty obvious. But uh... Yeah, he's been speaking about it again recently, basically saying, like, I know they're saying, look, we, we don't want to ruin it. But he said, well, imagine if after the first episode of Sopranos, they were like, well, you know, this is pretty good we've got here, but we want to make sure we don't ruin this. He was like, the, the pressure is on you to not ruin it. Like, it should, I shouldn't put you off, but I understand. He's only attached as a producer, so he probably doesn't have as much on the line. I respect the point, but one, that's not really the same. And two, it's kind of smacks of like the one band member that wants to get the band back together <laughs> and is desperately trying to do it. Like, just stop. Well, I know that Jonah Hill has said that thing previously where he says, look, we all have such a uh, nice emotional attachment to the film that we don't want to, even if it's just in our own heads, damage that at all. I think for Jonah Hill, there's probably the thing of he's only just got away from being called like the fat kid from Superbad, so he probably yeah, doesn't want to go back there. Michael Sarah was pretty honest, and he said, "Look, I mean, I'd happily do it." He said, "To be honest with you, I'd be happy to just make anything with that group <laughs> of people." 
like <laughs> for me it's not i need the gig yeah well even for him i feel like from what you see and i don't know how he seems very much like his character he's got that kind of mm. uptight while still laid back thing that's very hard to pull off where i imagine for him it's probably if i enjoyed it then that's a bonus of other people do if not i had a good time making it i'll set the page yet yeah, I always thought with this, if they really were going to do something, you'd probably get Bill Hader and Seth Rogen and do some, like, 25-minute episode comedy series. Yeah, good point. I think Rogen's always been against it as well, hasn't he? Yeah, like he's been Hills, pretty so. strongly against it. But there we go. I'm sure if it ever gets to the point where they are desperate for money, and the fact that you see them less probably means... They're not desperate for money. If we started seeing them constantly, that's probably when, at first glance, you might think, okay, they're really busy, they're really popular. When on the other hand, it might be, okay, you're having to just take the jobs you were declining previously. You can say no. But I don't know if Christopher Mintz Plass has just gone so far off the radar that he wasn't even asked about this. Like they, they just started, about, well, we'll assume he'll be on board. He's got nothing else going on. <laughs> Yeah, that's not newsworthy. If he comes out and says, "Look, I think we need to get it on again," like, yeah, nobody, <laughs> nobody doubts that, mate. Um, according to Josh Brolin, Sicario Three will happen eventually. Okay. Not much more info there. <laughs> Have you seen Sicario One and Two? I haven't seen two. Be interested on your. Did you like the first one? It was good. I've still never been really sure of my thoughts. I mean, we're going to watch it again on this podcast. My when I came out of the cinema was, okay, I was just getting into that and then it finished. I didn't quite get the fuss, I will admit. Oh, I thought it was good, no. but not. I don't know. Um, Martin Freeman says he now continually turns down nice guy roles because he wants to go darker. Interested. I saw a compilation with him the other day on, on TikTok, weirdly, it stumbled across it, um, where it was him and I can't remember what a caption was. It was basically him being himself to reporters and kind of putting them in their place and being sarcastic. And I could in- already see how him and Ricky Gervais got on so well because I've always thought being around him would definitely get very irritating no matter how much of a nice guy you were. But he seems probably like he hates people more than Ricky Gervais does. <laughs> Okay, I've not yeah, I've not seen him much out of the characters he's playing. So, I saw a clip of some American uh, criticizing the way he said a word, and I can't remember which word it was. It was one of those where there's like an English and American pronunciation, and he just in the middle goes, "Oh, sorry, is my grasp grasp of the English language not correct for you?" <laughs> so, the English language, the one that I know how to speak. Oh, okay. I'm I'm just <laughs> Oh, and the the presenter's kind of laughing it off, but he just seems like he's lost his filter and he has said before like, like who was it with? There was one with Jonathan Ross and I've said this to you before how I don't know how the people who are interviewed by him don't get more irritated. Yeah, fair. And he just looks like he's just not in the mood for it. Fair. Jonathan Ross is telling him See, you as Bilbo there, even with all the makeup, that does look like you. So, oh, what a weird concept. The <laughs> character that I play 
looks like me. Uh, it's just like when you played that guy in Sherlock. So. He has just done one though, hasn't he? I've not seen it, but he played a police officer in some in something recently that was kind was of a, a darker. Yeah, it was like an ITV drama. I think that sounds like he was like a dark sort of psychological thing. I think. I didn't. I can't say I watched it, but I saw the trailer of what. Obviously, again, very different for him. Yeah. He he said basically, just saying you want these roles isn't really going to work. You have to kind of show it by turning down the other ones and then just waiting and playing the waiting game till these other ones pop up. But. He's obviously a very good actor, so it's not like that doesn't do work. It. You're gonna have to have some sort of public meltdown <laughs> yeah. or something just to start getting these roles. And finally, Tom Cruise said it would be fun to bring Tropic Thunder to bring his character from Tropic Thunder back, Les Grossman. All the best. <laughs> <laughs> that is other than the Robert Downey character, that's gonna be a tough one to bring back. Yeah. Cause very off brand for Cruise now as well. Bear in mind, never done anything like that since. Be a weird one to shift back to. Well, the last thing with him was there was that rant of his that went viral and people were kind of applauding it where he was going mad at his crew during the filming <laughs> of Mission Impossible saying, you can't be going out without masks, you can't be doing this, you're not vaccinated. And then it turned out both him and the director, neither of them were vaccinated. <laughs> <laughs> Which, if you were saying about being on brand for Tom Cruise, that feels like it very much is. Totally, yeah. So there we go. Anyway, let's get into Basic Instinct, because there is plenty to say about this. Basic Instinct is a smashing psychological shocker. You like playing games, don't you? It's nice. Not since Fatal Attraction has there been such an electrifying thriller. You're in over your head. Michael Douglas is terrific. But I'm really anyway. And Rolling Stone calls it one charged up erotic thriller. Freeze! Basic Instinct, rated R. Uh, a violent police detective investigates a brutal murder that might involve a manipulative and seductive novelist. Might. What do you think the critics thought of this? And this is a combination of both now and then. Okay. I, th- I think they might be tough on it. Okay. Um, unevenly echoing the work of Alfred Hitchcock, Basic Instinct contains a star-making performance from Sharon Stone, but is ultimately undone by its problematic, overly lurid plot. One of the fine, one of the nineties finest productions, doing more for female empowerment than any feminist rally. <laughs> I did have this noted later on that any time a film is told that it's for female empowerment or it's a feminist icon, it's never anything else than just killing blokes. Like that is <laughs> <laughs> that is literally just what makes you a feminist icon in Hollywood. Yeah. You- you kill men and they just look stupid for the duration of this film, essentially. Like, you can do any film of like a woman like saving the day, doing all sorts, and it's like, nope, doesn't, that's that's no female icon for me. <laughs> Pretty sure, you know, I mean, we can mention the comparisons later, but Gone Girl gets a lot of the same, where it's like the female empowerment. Team. <laughs> I'm not sure this is the character you want to be. Uh, no, I'm basically definitely not in that yourself case, The film is like a crossword puzzle. It keeps your interest until you solve it. Then it's just a worthless scrap with the spaces filled in. 
that's sort of like, I mean, whilst I probably can agree with it, is that not like a lot of films? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, basic Instinct is a reminder of the difference between exhilaration and exhaustion, between tension and hysteria, between eroticism and exhibitionism. The line may be fine, but it's real enough to separate the great thrillers from the also-rans. And finally, the snappy dialogue and high-caliber acting by the central characters and a strong supporting cast keep the film from tipping over the brink into showgirls' territory. Yeah, all right. If we start with the casting and we'll effectively say what we could have had and then we'll go down the line and kind of pick things apart as we go through. So... Michael Douglas really felt an established star was needed to play Catherine so the movie would be carried by two well-known actors and he essentially says he wanted someone to share the risk of career damage so it wasn't just him going down if (laughs) if anyone was going to be he campaigned for Demi Moore or Michelle Pfeiffer for the part but essentially no actress of name was prepared to go completely nude for the role oh Christ Demi Moore would have I think just got far too into it. I think Christ. Michelle Pfeiffer pretty much said like as long as any older family members were alive, she wasn't <laughs> gonna do it. And she said ultimately she doesn't she said she doesn't feel that comfortable in her own body anyway. And after reading the script, even just once, she realised that was quite an integral thing to play the part. Yeah, yeah, just a bit. So some of the other Actors considered for the role of uh, Catherine Trammell include Drew Barrymore. And you'll see they were literally, I think, just asking anyone for both of these roles. Um, Courtney Cox. Carrie Fisher. Jodie Foster. (laughs) Nicole Kidman. Diane Keaton. Julia Roberts. Meg Ryan. Marisa Tomei. And Uma Thurman. How old is Diane Keaton by this point? I don't know. <laughs> this is early nights. What yeah. the hell? It, I mean, I've got the similar thing for the actors in a minute. It really seems like... Do you remember when QPR got the money and it was essentially <laughs> they were just taking names over actually what worked? <laughs> because it feels very much like that. Like ha- half of these... Like there were some others, and like one of the ones that was linked was like Helena Bonham Carter, and there was all of these that essentially their roles are almost that they're not comfortable in their own skin. Like Drew Barrymore's entire shtick is the girl next door that's quite shy and kind of reserved. I can't see some of these working. Meg Ryan, all I think about is the scene in Harold and Kumar where <laughs> they're, they're staying in to see her bush. <laughs> so maybe she would have been up for it. I don't know. Yeah, I can't see Emma Thurman doing it. Nicole Kidman is probably the one of all of those that I would say is yeah, yeah I can maybe. see doing it. And I think she's only really been more comfortable with that kind of thing in recent years. Like She did some roles where I don't even know the right word, where they're just a bit weirder, the roles, but the last couple of years, she just, just seems like, look, at this point, you've seen it, so what's the use in holding back anymore? 
once again, it appears they somewhat looked in on the casting front. Yeah, well, I didn't take all of this down, but she said, um, Sharon Stone, that she really had to fight for this role, and she said she didn't want to ask for it. So she'd worked with the director previously, and they had to do some reshoots for a film that they'd done. And so she just started wearing, like, overly tight tops. She said the reason that she did a Playboy shoot uh, a year and a half before was essentially just to show, please pick me for this role. Her career was going down the drain. It was it was petering out. And she needed something to get her back. And she said, I know I could nail this. And eventually they give her a chance. They offer her to just do a reading for the role. And uh, yeah, they smash it. Well, fair play. Um, on the acting front, so Michael Douglas wasn't the first option. So maybe he shouldn't have been so picky then later down the line when he's trying to... Uh, fish people out jeff bridges denzel washington kevin costner robert de niro harrison ford mel gibson ray liotta jack nicholson sean penn bruce willis and john travolta were all approached for the role they really did just get for everyone mel gibson mel gibson Hell. Out of that list, be a tough one to rewatch, wouldn't it? After being like Kevin Costner, too baby faced, kind of like I can't see him playing too, this. Um, too normally kind of straight laced, doesn't he? Really, yeah. I'm not John sure if Travolta, he's got that. a bit too weird. Like Michael Douglas is weird, but yeah, no, that definitely gets takes on something too weird, doesn't it? I mean, I don't think Bruce Willis is getting his cheeks out, to be honest with you. Sean Penn, you could see doing it. Jack Nicholson, like, I'm, I think not, it sure you, a, I'm not sure you want to give film. that man any free reign. No, I think it becomes a very different film. But... And Ray Liotta feels a bit too reserved to me, also. Yeah, he, the, the, the good thing about this film is, is that Michael Douglas, he is off the rails. And I guess Liotta would probably show that a little bit more. Whereas Douglas kind of gives the appearance of a man who's keeping it together, but obviously, as we'll see, absolutely isn't. He's, I mean, just all over the place. Uh, yeah, the, the role wasn't even going to be a male. The role originally written was going to be a lesbian cop. So did they scale that back? They thought that the world just isn't ready for that. Is that what? That's what I think they struggled enough to get one person to play the role of Tramel and figured right. it would be easier to get a male to do uh, the other side. Because they were they were obviously worried about like the controversy around this going in, and then yeah, I've got a bit on that. So if you threw in a, a sort of a lesbian curveball to it as well at this point, I, I think that wouldn't bear in mind. I think we sometimes reference the fact that like uh, tattoo, all the things she said was seen as like a controversial thing, and that was early noughties. So it's what ten years prior. Yeah, it's um... if you want a barometer of sort of social standing at the time, if you know. Well, yeah, I mean. I guess we could do it now because it's not really changing either way. In in terms of the controversy, it would have been fishy anyway. There was this kind of dynamic and this kind of uh, rhetoric that lesbian characters and particularly bisexual characters were just being represented horribly. Like you couldn't have a lesbian in a film without her being some kind of maniac, having some kind of like 
real character yeah. flaw. Yeah. I guess even now we had to have a discussion when we spoke about James Bond that look, should they have made a bigger deal about the fact that James Bond's mate is gay? And so this is however long before. It didn't then help that Silence of the Lambs has just come out as well. And <laughs> Buffalo Bill, where again there was all the stick of is it just because he cross-dresses this suddenly he's this psychopathic yeah. serial killer? So there was a lot of protest. There was people protesting outside the set every day. When the film eventually came out, people were coming with picket fences outside the cinema of science saying, Catherine did it and <laughs> don't see this movie and all sorts. You'd be fuming if you were looking forward to this film. Someone's doing that. Yeah, and... One of the bigger things in, in 2002, um, Joe, I'm going to butcher his name here, um, Asturhas, he apologised because he said one of the biggest issues was that they glamorise smoking in the movie. <laughs> they actually do. They really and do. He, he then went on to catch lung cancer. Well, not catch it like he called it in the street, but he, <laughs> he, he developed lung cancer. And that's when he apologised afterwards. Yeah, I don't think it's the first thought I have with this film, but they do glamorise it. Well, there's, there was also a thing that, look, if you're going to have all this sex in the film, you should have shown him putting on a condom at some stage. Yeah, I remember hearing someone say it. Well, thinking, we're going to speak about. Ever, when does that ever happen? We're going to speak about the scene um, up in the therapist's flat, but the oh, initial f- the initial issue with that is that he doesn't wear any protection. Yeah, that seems kind of missing the point. It, it's, there was a lot going on, clearly. Like, 97, <laughs> some kind of, like, transition year where people just don't really know... This is 92. What to do. Yeah, sorry. Um, well, I was going to say, when it gets to 97, you've still got um, a transgender character in Con Air that I'm sure if there wasn't so much going on, there may be some issues with that. Mm, yeah, good point. They're clearly uh, going for it in this. The director wasn't bothered, went for it, even with all of the uh, stick they were getting, because this is going on while it's being filmed. The script or parts of the script were leaked. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, it was leaked enough where the way these characters are being represented hadn't gone down well. I did, I did have it written down, but the thing that got me the most, the group that came out to really protest against this was like the lesbian and bisexual something organisation, but mm. their group was called Labia, and that's with the lesbian and bi. <laughs> I was like, okay, you've done quite well there to abbreviate this. And Excellent. Credit where to you. Um, I mean, and- if, if there was some balance... I don't think straight men are portrayed particularly greatly in this. So, if no, you, want, you know, even in Blackout. That's what uh, Roger Ebert said when he did his review of this. And he said, as much as I can maybe see, I can see that there is something that needs to be done with representation within Hollywood. He said, the straight characters don't represent themselves well either. That, so, it's not like terrible. one is pure white, angel angelic and then the others are all like the devil it's murky waters for everyone i i think they've 
probably at the time created a bit of a Streisand effect by processing it like this because I don't I don't know about you if I didn't know about any of that I don't think I would have come away from that film thinking of their depictions of homosexuality or anything like that as a bad thing I think there's a lot more going on a lot bigger stuff that you say I can see there would be an area of controversy for that I'm not sure this is the best example of that because even if the issues are with kind of the, the storyline in that okay, they, they have uh, like a lesbian relationship and then one becomes obsessed with the other and you're going down that path. On the other side, you have um, Curran who ends the film being obsessed with her. And so yeah. it's not everything that you would say is being held against the representation there. Seems to apply to all sides, but I guess we're not going to look at it as uh, with the same sensitivity. But I think a lot of the criticism was around the nightclub scene. Listen, he should never have been in that nightclub. Full stop. That's my question. What is that? That is another thing that's pointed out. As he's walking across the dance, I'm thinking, you are not only on there to be everyone's parent, you could be a grandparent. I I wrote in my notes that you could drop Travolta's dancing from Pulp Fiction into the middle of this nightclub and it draws (laughs) less attention than he does just walking around. We were speaking when I was in the barbers, actually, and we were saying, uh, one of them was saying that they're 33, I think now, and they went on a stag do recently and realised they were the oldest person in the club at this point. Yeah. We were saying that whenever you've seen someone older in a club when you were younger, someone would always get a picture of them. It would be like a funny thing. This old old bloke in here, all these young girls around. At what point do you look around and you're like, Oh, shit. I'm that guy. You don't want to be that guy. Michael Douglas is the father of that guy. Yeah, yeah. 100%. Yeah. And he got a facelift before shooting this. Blimey, did he? Jesus. Yeah. Go on, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> what a sport. Um, What should we speak about first? Let's speak about Michael Douglas first. So he declined to go full frontal for this film much to the director's despair as much as it's not something that i'm gutted we didn't get to see when sharon stone's doing what she's doing do you not feel like michael douglas if earlier he wanted a big name actress in to take the fall with him if he has to go down he's kind of hung her out to dry there yeah yeah bad guy he's not a good teammate (laughs) well sharon stone did say in an interview with playboy that she did after the film she said that she really did not feel comfortable around Michael Douglas. Oh, wow. She said he probably felt the same way with her, and it probably did work for the movie in the in the long run, that the discomfort probably translated onto the screen in a, in a funny kind of way. But, yeah, she said she didn't enjoy shooting scenes with him. She didn't get on with him. She didn't feel like she enjoyed his company or felt comfortable in his presence. So, Interesting. He was also heavily criticised for not letting Sharon Stone have the above the title billing. Okay. If you think of Basic Instinct, and even before I'd seen it, you think of Sharon Stone, don't you? Like before, before I saw this, I wouldn't have put Michael Douglas's name in it. No, it's Sharon Stone's film, isn't it? Um, not to go over a category we'll be covering later. It, yeah. It's her <laughs> film. And to that end, I guess it doesn't really matter the name on the billing, but yeah, bit of a deep move something about his character and this may be a deep one to to get into early on but 
do you think the director thought about it in this way? Is he supposed to be the real bad guy in all of this? Like, he assaults his therapist, whether the director says that or not. Um, we see it that way. I text you as soon as I saw the scene. Like, are they just going to pretend this hasn't happened? Fairly well. Uh, well, I believe the, past. the director was asked about it, and he was like, it's just his character. <laughs> Strange. Uh, he's been involved in multiple shootings where he's taken out innocent bystanders while high on cocaine. He had a cocaine addiction. Um, all of his actions contributed to his wife's suicide. The girl that he ends up lusting after mocks his dead wife, and he's disgusted for about 10 minutes. And he's like, <laughs> If she's going on a night out, I've not got anyone better to go with. What am I going to do? Stay home? <laughs> He's a peeping Tom after about 20 minutes of the film, which we just pretend hasn't happened. This is like her allure. This is look how breathtakingly beautiful she is, is that men just cannot keep their eyes off her. He's poking his head around the bedroom wall while she's getting changed. It's It's insane and Verhoeven, the director, he, as I said, just kind of brushes off any real critique of the character. Not that he has to, he has to apologise for the character. It's a great character in the questions that it poses. But do you think there's any part of him that's supposed to be portrayed as the real bad guy, so to speak? I think there is a part of that, isn't there? Yeah, there is. Um, because he's kind of the most extreme, the, the, the cop that's sort of down on his luck and going for a bad time and does the questionable things. He is the most extreme end of that, where you got he's done a lot of really bad things before <laughs> this film and during it. And so generally, it's like you're supposed to end up rooting for him. And I'm really not sure you do. I think it helps with the, the Sharon Stone dynamic that as a result, you kind of are semi-rooting for her and semi-rooting for him to catch her. There's that, and it adds, I guess, to the cat and mouse thing, I suppose. Because yeah. it's like, at a bare minimum... If he's not the bad guy, he's not the good guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah he's definitely not a good guy. And even um, even in films where you usually have the look, I, I am a detective. I've seen some things, but ultimately, I'm I get the job done, whether it's done all the completely the right way. You still root for them. They're still supposed to be. Yeah, I wouldn't say he's guy. an anti-hero. I no, go that. You usually at least have one thing where they kind of say this bad thing happened to this person and that explains why they're the person they are today. Yeah. Exactly. Their morals at the, at their core are good. With him... It's supposed to add a bit of depth, isn't it? You almost... I had to pause it and think, did I miss something when suddenly she's mentioning the shooting, Nick? Were you on cocaine? Did did we go past this? Like, they keep, Yeah, they keep just dropping little bits of information about this guy. What the hell? But the main thing with that is... This happened not that long ago, and they're just going, "Yeah, yeah, you're back on the uh, back on the job." No, no, we shouldn't be back on the job. This guy is out all over the place. He's, you know, he's shot it? a couple of people. He's got a drug problem. His wife's killed himself. He's in counselling for all of this. And hey, yeah, yeah, you just stick you on a murder case. No problem. You're not having a drink, are you, Nick? I'm only having. <laughs> all right, if you're only having one, you behave yourself. Stop riding me, man. <laughs> also, I, I do think. If if I had had the things that have happened to him, I wouldn't draw attention to myself. And any opportunity he has to, he almost screams like, please look at me, everyone. Look at all the awful things I've done, but don't judge me. You don't know what I've been through. 
<laughs> and the, the main thing, aside from that, all the flaws he's got, he's also a terrible cop. Yeah. yeah. We'll get to the numerous instances in this, but he's not good at the job. It is his mate's Gus, isn't it? I've not butchered the name wrong. Yeah. Yeah. He's the only relatable character in all this because he spends almost the duration of the film going, What the hell are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> he is the audience. At like halfway through, he's like, Look, I don't believe you did it, but I'm in the minority. So I hope you out the best I can. And then as soon as he sees her cut his flat, he's like, What the hell is wrong with you? <laughs> what are you doing to me? <laughs> he's just he's a very 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 bizarre character and if it's unintentional it's been done perfectly if it's intentional then <laughs> it's given us all the right questions um, mm. so I think it'll all kind of tie in if we could uh, let me just check something I just want to make sure I don't go okay we'll, we'll get back to that so if we talk about Sharon Stone first. Hmm. So during the scene where Bill is stabbed with the ice pick right at the start of the film, the ice pick pick was only supposed to hit the blood packs on Bill's chest, but Sharon Stone got so into the scene, the ice pick actually went through the, the, the packs and penetrated his chest underneath in multiple places. No one was aware at the time. They thought he was just doing some great acting while screaming in pain. (laughs) And he had various puncture wounds from between half an inch to an inch deep. Honestly, with everything going on with this film, you could have said to me, Sharon Stone decided to method act and actually killed him. (laughs) And they just sat around on the set and be like, yeah, okay, fair enough, we'll roll with it. I wouldn't rule it out. He didn't sustain any serious injuries, but he, he has been left with permanent scars. I'm going to say that's fairly serious. I reckon a nice pick to the chest. <laughs> yeah. I think if I said I've had a nice pick to the chest, people consider that fairly serious. I don't want to laugh while saying it. If we compare it to the accidents that happened in the other film we'll be doing today, probably did get off quite lightly. If we compare it to some of the things that AJ skipped the pod for, <laughs> I'd say, if he said, look, I've had a nice pick to the chest, that's like, you know what, AJ, you can sit this week out. That's absolutely fine. I mean, I only did see today that someone did die while making Con Air. Wow, that's pretty incredible. I didn't actually know that. Yeah, stunt plane fell on them. Wow, that's... So the person they say kind of in memory of at the start of the film, that's why. Right, right, okay. So as long as he got his credit in a film, I'm I'm sure he's at peace. I hope John Malkovich really got into the role and was like, well, look, (laughs) it's a fucking body. (laughs) What are you going to do? Could this role have been as effective without Sharon Stone going bare? I do think it was necessary. I think it's the whole... That, that opener sets the tone of this whole thing. The brutality of it is fucking crazy. But the sort of mixed in with the sexuality of it. That is the film, isn't it? It's brutal, that is her, by the way. There were some questions as to whether that yeah. is her in the opening scene. Okay. Like, if you go back and watch it with a forensic eye, which I'm sure some people have, and probably not for that reason, um, you can, you do get various glimpses of her face. So you can ruin the film in the first, like, 15 seconds. Well, I mean, we'll come on to the, sort of, towards the end of the film. Obviously, I'm sure we'll, we'll get to that. Yeah. The, the whodunit element to it is kind of fucking crazy. I mean, I don't <laughs> really know. I mean, they kind of forget about it for a large part. 
and it's okay we'll turn this into a whodunit i'm not sure we need that i i think we know i think we've got a good idea but anyway i, I guess it's, I wrote... it's a fun end it's fun still if nothing else yeah i wrote in my notes that and i mentioned it when we did beverly hills cop but because it's that type of film and you aren't wasting your time with the whodunit the first person you see, the first person they accuse is the guy that did it. And so you just spend the whole film trying to catch that person. This is described as a mystery thriller. There isn't much mystery. <laughs> oh, oh, phenomenal. I mean, one of the greatest mysteries is when she gives, uh, like, the fake name of the therapist. But then the first time he approaches her and says, is this her? So, yeah, she was obsessed with me, by the way. She dyed her hair. She did everything. <laughs> the mystery goes very quickly. There's a couple of things that leave you curious, but I don't know if you got this at all while seeing the film. The director had to come out after and confirm who the killer was <laughs> because people were saying that he'd left like an ambiguous ending and what was your reasons for doing that? And he said, I thought I made it quite clear. <laughs> you literally see her picking up the murder weapon at the end of the film. Yeah, that's it. If you don't see the ice pick at the end, I can go with, well, I guess there's some level of deniability that that Sharon Stone at the start, I guess. If you want to say this woman just, just impersonating her, I, I guess you can go with it. So if he doesn't do that, then I can maybe see how you could think it was ambiguous. Once that's done, I think it's cleared it up pretty easily. Yeah. With, with the casting, by the way, all I could think of um, when I was reading it was, if you were going to do this today, I think you'd go Jake Gyllenhaal, Margot Robbie. Yeah, it's a great shout. Yeah, I was thinking for the... I don't think anyone else could really do the Sharon Stone, Stone role. I was thinking, who, you know, if you were looking down then yeah. for more than who you do? Margot Robbie came into my head. I thought it'd be interested for numerous reasons to see yeah. that one. Um, and Jake Gyllenhaal's a great shout for him, actually. That's a great shout. I thought, <laughs> dropping ourselves in here, a lot here. I, I thought of Margot Robbie in in a similar sense of, I can remember just the, the transfiction, the obsession that the general public had with her after Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah. yeah. I can't imagine what it was like for Sharon Stone after this came out. No, that must have been insane, must not it? And if we're talking pressure, when your character's been described as the lay of the century. The fuck of the century. Thank you. All right, so there is two different versions of this, so we may have seen different versions of the film. Oh, right. Yeah. I, s I like the idea that they've got, wow, look, we can't say fuck in here. We better, we better clean essentially, this up. We don't want to offend anyone. The differences, because I did look up the differences, um, there's like two different director's cuts and a theatrical cut. Right, okay. One is slightly more gruesome at the start of the film, which I think I saw where you see him getting stabbed through the head. And mm. she carries on riding him after while stabbing him. Good um, and yeah, the difference between lay of the century, fuck of the century, and I got lay of the century, but I can't say it would have changed too much of the film <laughs> if uh, if they swapped that over. So I'm not really sure what the thinking was there. Mm. The if we do. All right, we'll come back to the legs crossed scene. If we talk about those kind of scenes in general, because the critics that really don't like this film essentially do just say, look, this is a, a sequence of sex scenes with 
minimal narrative in between. Yeah, I don't see that. I think there's no, but that's the very base critical yeah. review of it. Like they are a plenty, but it does feel like one of the few films where the sex scenes and when they are as graphic as they are in this, they do actually amplify the story and the film. They aren't just put in there like a teen comedy where, okay, we'll put some tits after 20 minutes. We're going to do some Bush after half an hour. Like they amplify the film. They are threaded into the plot. They're not just placed in almost just dropped into the film just to kind of get your money's worth. And it is a rare case of them actually being important to the plot. Yeah, it's it's a fairly obvious case of if you don't want to see that, this I don't know what about this film made you think you'd watch it. <laughs> no, like all of the promo work, even at the time, is like the sexiest film of the summer. Hmm. Like yeah if you went to see it and you then you didn't want to see that is yeah if it's not one that you sit down and watch with your mum like in fact i just stuck it on to watch and my mum's come upstairs with uh some washing i was like yeah, probably not a good time so what do you mean i've seen this film already hmm. well leave me to watch it we're watching this one together <laughs> sorry sharon stone's here you can't come in sorry it was the the dilemma was i paused it because I thought it's going to be weirder if you're like stopping for a chat and you can just hear these two going at it in the background. <laughs> but then I don't think she paid much attention. So when I said, not the best time to walk in, she turned at the screen and just seen Sharon Stone on top going for it. So thankfully, she'd seen the film, I guess. I have down here, well, yeah, right from the start, I've literally put, they really get straight into it. Yeah, it's it is great. They do get straight down to straight down to business. It's sort of, as I said, the brutality. Of it. But then the the follow up when the, when the police come into it, that really sets the tone of the film as well. <laughs> because these cops are just so casual about the whole thing. Yeah. When they, when they go, uh, the the only bit of I guess forensics is the guy he refers to it as cum stains, not even not even seen <laughs> or whatever. And yeah, how much gone. is that? It's like it's. It's like the guy must have had balls like a whale because it's like literally the entire bed. You know, what's going on here? We had that with at the start of seven, don't you, where they're doing the police work and the guy's like, oh, I'm so fucking sick of you like, doing your job. <laughs> they get that with the the only one is the police captain who's like trying to take it seriously. And that's, even that's just because of how he's worried how it's going to look. And they're yeah. all kind of treating him like he's some sort of square. <laughs> Supply teacher coming in. What are you ruining our fun for? They're all they are all getting off jokes, aren't they? The one goes, he got off before he got off. It's like, this is just this is just ridiculous. It's one big boys' club. Even Michael Douglas having a bit of a laugh at this point. Yeah. Well, to be fair, that's what we learn about him after. Probably didn't take you too much to uh get into it. It's 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 one of the things though, as we say, so you've got the sex right to start it off, and then the, the, with the violence. Remember when the number one marketing campaign for films would be saying how many people left the cinema. Yeah. And so yeah, yeah. this would definitely have been one of them. Like 10% of people walked out within the first 20 minutes. I see yeah, Lad Bible do a thing now and it's, it's like uh, 
people are saying this is the scariest film they've ever seen. It's some like Netflix film from 2007 that nobody has ever said that about, apart from one random Twitter account. Fantastic marketing, and you get Doing just enough absolute... people. Let's talk about the next kind of sex scene after that, then. And it is where Michael Douglas has sex with uh, Gene Triplehorn, which is a fantastic name. Um, so this scene that you see in the picture, they say was filmed without the two actors knowing. They say they were simply rehearsing the scene, which maybe tells you what life was like on set with the way they're going for it. Um, I say things heated up quickly. An already dark see by the footage. <laughs> An already dark scene feels just that extra bit darker. And the director said... Because well, didn't know the camera was on him, just feels, oh, God. Yeah, he says he, he liked it so much that he included that in the final in the final film, uh, which they didn't know was being used until they saw it back afterwards. It is a, it is a very odd scene anyway, just in the... You kind of think, right, they've got this relationship, and you think it's going this way. And then there's a very clear sort of, no, this shouldn't be happening. At one point, you think, okay, this is one thing's going to lead to another here. Yes. No, 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 this is going to stop now. It's not stopping. Michael, what are you doing? Well, it's kind of the the movie sex scene is essentially the like someone has to push someone else into a wall for this to count. Like that has to be the way of doing it. Someone's not too sure. They are backed into a wall and suddenly it's game on. Something about that cold touch of the wall convinced them. <laughs> you know what? Actually, I'm on board. I mean, I'm... really, you think certainly if the film's made anything like this now, which this definitely couldn't, or even at the time, you have the he's going for it. She says no enough times. And then like slaps him or something, and he sort of snaps out of it and realizes, right? It's kind of the yeah, thing. Like, so they give you the impression that look, this guy's a bit unhinged, got some issues, but he's not fully off the uh, off the cliff edge yet. Yeah, it's not even one where you can say to the director, like, did did she give consent? Because with you watched a history of violence, didn't you? After we did it on the podcast, yeah, yeah. Um, and thankfully that this this scene wasn't on the stairs. But there was controversy surrounding that scene. <laughs> With a child at home. Yeah. There was controversy surrounding that where they asked the director, was was that rape? And he said, no, I, I don't understand why you saw it like that. With this one, like, it's not even a question. She clearly says no about three times. Yeah, ambiguity goes out the window. And then even they show them lying down after and she doesn't look like... I've just had the time of my life. She's looking like, oh, didn't enjoy that. Glad that's over with. As I said, yeah, then tells him to get out. The main controversy was the AIDS epidemic was a big topic at the time, and he didn't pause to uh, rubber up. That just seems outrageous. I mean, has there ever been a film going right? Just make sure I get this on. Yeah, I said previously so they were trying to demand it happen in a James Bond film. So weird. The, the other thing about this, though, as well, she does seem most put out by the fact that bearing in mind what he's just done to her then he goes can i have a smoke and she, i thought you said you quit <laughs> <laughs> that seems to be the thing oh so you're falling off the wagon then what do you like he, he can control himself clearly <laughs> where was this 10 minutes ago i mean we are i guess for the sake of the character they're getting a pretty good idea of how he's spiraling because we've been confronted by all these issues and in the space of a matter of minutes, he's drank, 
committed sexual assault and started smoking again. So he's firmly back on, off the rails. Yeah, the, the director If he said, ever had his shit together, he's got no... <laughs> yeah, as the director said, that's that's just his character. This wasn't... He says people were viewing it for more than what it was, or said that without saying that, but... Well, I, I think it's a... a I think it's a good part of the, the film in terms of building this character as someone who is just a total mess. So, you know, he's, I, as long as you don't think he's supposed to be a likeable guy, no. I think this kind of works in its own way. No, I'd already written in my notes, like, I, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to root for this guy or not, but we're watching this for like 30 years down the line now. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that scene is one where we might go, well, it was a different time. I don't think it was a different time. I think <laughs> I think even at the time it was a yeah, yeah we, we shouldn't have done this. When you consider the fact that Sharon Stone says she didn't feel comfortable with Michael Douglas, the scene that they have after the nightclub. Mm. The director said that he filmed basically the same scene from three different angles from varying degrees of closeness because he was just convinced that the studio and uh, the certification board was going to say that this can't pass. And so they had to spend three times as long doing it so we could get all the shots. In the end, they had no objections to it. I think after the first 10 minutes, they were like, well, we'll just put our feet up now. There's nothing we're cutting out of this, clearly. But if we said the scene at the start of A History of Violence felt slightly long, this one is like a music video and a half. <laughs> we commented, again, in A History of Violence, just... At the sheer fact that they were doing a bit more than just dropping their trousers and going at it. I mean, this one here, they're filming it for enough times where they're filming both of them giving each other head and then yeah. various positions from different angles. The director said, I've got Sharon Stone for two hours, seven minutes. I'm maximizing this two hours, seven minutes. <laughs> I don't you know. Gotta realize Michael they, Douglas was complaining afterwards. You got to realize the internet wasn't about. So this is people had to get their rocks off somehow. This was something like this had to be. Yeah, he he claims that they had a little thing around this film coming out, which which she strongly denies. Um, which I guess we'll get into in a second. That's that's not the only thing that she has a differing account of. Mm. With this, it. It was obviously building up to this moment where she's gone to kiss him several times. They've kind of had the back and forth. Um, they've shown her put her moves on him and then necking a girlfriend or just the woman that lives with her while having a little grope of her when they leave the flat. It's been building and building and building to this point. I guess they thought if this is what the whole film is based around we're going to give it the moment that it deserves. Yeah. Yeah, I think it has to, didn't it? That there's the whole thing of this tension between them is building and building. I guess they had to go all out on this. And in a film where Curran clearly thinks that he's the one in control, well, really, we see the whole time that Tramel is the one in control. Hmm. Is that what they're hammering home in the moments after where she's kind of like, oh, was it, was it that special? And he's saying to her girlfriend, that was the lay of the century. This is the best I've ever felt in my life. That's exactly it, isn't it? It's, it's the most clear sort of uh, power dynamic ever that he's like thinking this is the best thing ever. And she can barely remember his name. 
right? It's one of the, why he's doing that, by the way. He's he's a man of the world. Why is he going? Oh, that was fucking incredible, wasn't it? <laughs> what do you think is going to happen? You can only end up getting mugged. Yeah, I understand that he references the worry of being killed as part of the thrill. I have to think he doesn't need to be tied up <laughs> to know that completely. Or it was like he's trying to reach just a point of ecstasy at that point. Like, can this get any better? The thrill. If I have the chance that she's going to stab me here, this is really going to take me over the edge. The risk reward there doesn't add up. I don't know if that's one of them where like the post nut clarity for him, he's like, oh, that wasn't a, that wasn't a good idea, was it? That was not a good idea. I think that would be the most stark post-nut clarity <laughs> ever. I think the instant that was done, you'd be like, what the fuck am I doing here? Get me out. Because they do that. They, they do master that every time where they have her reaching back, where they make such a thing of it, even before you see how gruesome it gets in the opening scene. Just a shot of her reaching back to, to, pick, to grab the ice pick. The fact they do that every time she's in bed afterwards you do have that moment like oh and the whole time that scene's going on for however long it is you are constantly is this about to happen yeah 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 it's for all we're gonna say about you know the, these uh their explicit scenes they're long the tension attached to them is incredible bear in mind i've seen this film before i'm still watching this going is she about to fucking get it so there's a the way they build the tension is incredible you've got to give it to them yeah the, the scene that does that the best for me and I don't know after what number of the Final Destination films you gave up. In question. the last one that came out, you'd have seen this on the trailer. There's a, ma- a woman doing gymnastics on one of those beams and mm. just a pin falls and you can see it. It's nail, sorry, and it's just sticking up on this, on this plank of wood. Oh, dear Lord. And they're doing the tiptoes over it, hands and feet, and you are proper, like, clenching every part of your body. You're like, oh, my God. <laughs> Eventually, obviously, they do stand on it, and it kickstarts a chain of things. But the second or third time you see it, you know it's not happening for the first, like, 45 seconds, but you're still completely on the edge. Like, oh, yeah, this is yeah, the yeah. one where I can't look. <laughs> and with this, as, as you said, I've got to imagine it's similar because you're almost disbelieving what you know is going to happen. Yeah, yeah, exactly that. And if that scene was explicit, then so is the scene that if it doesn't put the film on the map, it keeps it there. Important to say that no body doubles were used in any of the sex scenes. A lot of the reviews in hindsight now are just criticising Michael Douglas's saggy cheeks so rough ride, <laughs> rough ride for him um, but Sharon Stone has claimed in several interviews over the years that Paul, Paul Verhoeven asked her to remove her underwear for the leg crossing scene she says that she had white underwear on and they were too bright and they were reflecting on the camera she, oh, says, chestnut. she says she agreed to do so under the assumption that her genitals wouldn't be shown and it was only an early preview that. of the film that she discovered Verhoeven chose to use this specific shot. Oh, fuck. That is. That's tricky. That's very dicey. According to a poll across various movie subscription services, Sharon Stone's infamous leg crossing scene has been named the most paused moment, most paused moment in movie history. 
<laughs> the director's version of events, he says, admittedly, that scene wasn't in the original script. And it, was, the back thought, foot here, boss. <laughs> it was thought up while the movie was being shot. He says he was at a party when he was 17. A girl opened her legs like that to embarrass him, and it stuck with him ever since. Right. I've, from what I gather of her interpretation was maybe that this was going to be inferred. Yeah. But this wasn't happening, and then I think she feels even more exploited when you're releasing like director's cuts down the line with a longer shot, and then you're releasing a Blu-ray cut with never-before-seen footage <laughs> and angles and... For her, she seems more let down. I don't think it's keeping her up at night. I think she's very aware you've seen it at this point. And she's yeah. even said further down the line that she can acknowledge that it did work well for the film. Oh, definitely. It, it, it is the right thing for her character to do. She says she just wishes she had the choice. And she says, I'm not even saying I would have said no. I just wish I'd been consulted because ultimately it is my body that millions of people around the world are, are going to be sitting in their cinema seats seeing. Yeah, that's it, isn't it? I think I think it's why her rendition of events seems so much more believable because she hasn't been on a crusade against this. She's just said, "Look, look I should have had the should have had final say in this," which doesn't seem unfair. Yeah, she she says that at the first showing of it, she slapped him once she saw it, yeah, which I'm surprised. he which he doesn't deny. But he says she did. She he he says that she knew what she was doing. She she knew she was just trying oh, to kind of frame herself better. And he says, look, there's no bad blood between us. We're perfectly fine. I'm not sure <laughs> what she would say there. But I guess we can say it works perfectly well for the film. Like I knew what was coming, and even still, I'm not saying I didn't expect it, but. It is very in your face. <laughs> you don't usually get <laughs> that in films. Yeah, let's face it. And this, you know, it's probably, if she was, you know, traumatised by this whole thing, then it would be neither here nor there. But what has come from it is obviously, it was incredible for her. And in one of the most incredible scenes in any movie, in terms of that's just an iconic scene. The whole thing, not just the leg, the, the leg, the leg and crossing. Yeah. Her sort of... Uh, the way she holds court in that whole interview is yeah. just incredible. She went on to parody it on Saturday Night Live. Um, she's made jokes about it before, so she hasn't hidden from it. As we said, I don't know what she could have done, but... No, I think she's dealt with it as well as anyone could have, doesn't she, really? Yeah, and this is this is going to sound very piggish, but so I'll say we're referencing Harold and Kumar here. Um, <laughs> or Knocked Up, or whatever you want to be. I think we've quoted before the marketing ploy for Piranha, where it was essentially, don't worry about anything else to do with this film. Kelly Brook has a lesbian sex scene in this. Yeah. And it would be the same if this film came out now. If they sold it as Margot Robbie recreates the Sharon Stone basic instinct scene, they literally wouldn't even need to put out a trailer. <laughs> and so it's as good cinema. a marketing campaign as, you, as you're going to get. You just have lines of blokes waiting outside the cinema. <laughs> you don't normally go to, ah, oh, there's this new film on. I love erotic thrillers. 
and it's for the storyline. Oh yeah, yeah. Just, just like the, the best thing with that is the uh, the women who love the Fifty Shades one who do yeah. like, put this faux outrage on when you're like, oh come on, that's just softcore, isn't it? Like, no, no, you just don't get it. You just don't get the plot. Well, it's like, come let's, off it. Let's call it what it forget. is. Some of the stories that came out of those those showings in the cinemas were horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> Like that was full, Martin Tyler. You'll never see anything like this ever again. <laughs> Don't drink it in. I wouldn't say that. Oh, part it was of Martin mental. Tyler. And yeah, that's all I'm saying. If if the film wasn't going to be a success anyway, just the sheer outrage on top of the outrage that there already was. Yeah. yeah this yeah. isn't your standard movie scene. Now Wayne Knight, who no matter how many times I see him, I'm still going to know him as Stan from Space Jam. Um. He actually, off the back of this, gets cast in Jurassic Park. He was the first person cast in Jurassic Park. Spielberg says he saw this film. He stayed behind through the credits just to see what this guy's name was so he could put him in his film. The, mar- the first person cast, remarkable. He says... It he is Seinfeld as well, so this is a pretty yeah. incredible time for him. He's having a hell of a run. But... He, he says he's under no illusions about why he was cast. He says he was essentially cast to be the antithesis of Sharon Stone's character. He says, I was supposed to be the most desperate looking person in the world that could have had this placed in front of him. He said, <laughs> he said his direction for the scene was that he was dying in the desert when an oasis suddenly appeared in front of him. And that's why he's licking his lips. Good God. And he says, before anyone calls him a creep, when he does laugh while he says that, um, he says, I had a giant camera box placed in front of my face. So what I'm seeing in that moment is just literally a black screen because it's just a dot in, in my face saying, look here while you're doing the reaction shots. If you say so, Wayne. If you say so, boss. They yeah. <laughs> um, did say, so what? You were, the, you were the first person cast in Jurassic Park. And he That's says, remarkable. He says, if you see the size of me in that film, you probably had to get in quick before I died. You couldn't take that chance. <laughs> and they asked, if, they asked if he saw the sequel. And he said, I, I'm, I make a point to not see any sequels of films that I was involved when I'm not in the second one. Because ultimately that means you could have asked me to be in it and you decided not to. <laughs> Maybe it would have been better if he was. Yep. But yeah, the scene, whether you know what's coming or not, as iconic as it can be, the smoking, as you said, whether it's glorifying it or not, everything about it, I guess the fact that you've got four, minimum four blokes lined up in front of her, she's still the one kind of, as soon as she says, what, are you going to charge me for smoking as well? They're all completely silent and stunned. They're all just so on the back foot immediately. She just switches it on them. You got the, the whole chief even the, stuttering over his words. Yeah, like for all you know, Wayne Knight's the the one that you're sort of uh, picking out as kind of getting all very clammy. Yeah. When I watch this. They all basically are, aren't they? They're all mesmerised, and she's just pulling the strings this whole time. Yeah, even when she says, "Then, well, I'll do a lie detector test if you want." Yeah, um, yeah. It's it standard uh, police thing, and me and Keenan were saying it with uh, seven where he's just handed himself in and several of the police were like, well, you know what? That's good of him. We've caught him now. So nothing else to worry about. And the fact that, uh, Karen is saying, well, no, she's obviously going to pass this. Like 
she wanted us to give her this test. She knows what <laughs> yeah. she's doing. And they're like, yeah. <laughs> I think you'll have to get up pretty early to trick us if you think <laughs> yeah. you're going to do it just like that. <laughs> they looked to themselves and thought, come on, no one's outwitting us, lads. Come on, <laughs> think about it. Even um, her manipulation of using Nick, just repeatedly calling him Nick, referencing yeah. cocaine, his marriage and stuff. It's just, she's just immediately in his head and all in, in all of the other guys as well. I mean, this woman knows more than all of us. Yeah. Which I mean, makes why? the lie that thing even more bizarre that they just think they're, they're cleverer than her. Yeah. And she's she, already demonstrated it. She's grinning on the way down to the interrogation. And the, the guy administering the test says something, doesn't he, where he says um, either she's not lying or she's unlike anyone I've ever seen before. Um, that, that's, that's a good line. Film as well, that's nice. a good line. The... Uh, the whole, well, obviously the tension immediately obviously starts between Nick and her within that room as well is one of the yeah. things and speaking of those other guys in there when they're looking around like do you know each other it's kind of if you've ever been out with a group and you're pretty sure these two people are going to fight and you're like <laughs> we probably shouldn't be here this is all a bit weird <laughs> yeah well, it's, it, it is all very well done and it is bad that you can't possibly like at work, I always say the two films I'm doing each week. And I said this film, and it's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> seen that before. What did you pick that one? Interesting. A little glint in their eye. So it it does what it's uh, supposed want, to do. A bit of a, obviously not the main takeaway from this. Do you want to comment on the police work being done here? <laughs> Truly incredible. The whole film. Just, yeah. But in this, they're routinely going, well, She's written a book on it, so she's not obviously going to do it because that gives her an alibi. You know, I'm not sure that is the case. And they even preempt her using that as an alibi. Yeah, and they go, like, "Well, look, you know, what's she going to do that for?" You're like, Lads, you're not figuring this out. Something someone pointed out, by the way, in the scene where they're driving across to the interrogation, a car goes past them on the other side of the road with the number plate from the DeLorean in Back to the Future, the Outer Time. So it's like pretty inescapable. Like you clearly wanted that to be there. But there's just He's never like... been any explanation as to why that's happened. <laughs> that's kind like, of what I like that. There's no one that worked across both films. There's nothing that Zemeckis or anyone else has said. There's nothing that Verhoeven said. It's just in the film. It was only I, someone who noticed it um, about 10 or so years ago. That's it, yeah. I, I just happened pretty, to see it when I, was cool. looking for, when I was looking for trivia. So. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. I would, I've never it. That's pretty cool. Yeah. By the way, that whole thing goes on. They let him give her a lift home. But yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you just give her a ride. What the hell? What about this whole thing made you think, yeah, yeah, get in a car with him? As well, because... She's clearly a murderer, and he, you know everything about him. You've got his file. If if we assume that I drive in this instance, and you take any one of me, you, and two of our other mates... Something tells me the element of you driving isn't going to be the most far-fetched no. part of this, so <laughs> I'll go with it, right? Yeah, and there is someone at least as fit as Sharon Stone in this scenario and says, all right, who's going to give me a lift home then? All four of us, whether someone says they will or not, has the thought go through their head, I can't be the one to say this or I'm going to look like a pest. (laughs) Someone's going, oh, okay. He doesn't even give it the, if no one else is going to offer, then I'll do it. Yeah, he's He's straight Yeah, I'll do it. And then just very quickly from there, it escalates, doesn't it? 
they're chatting on the street they're coming up to the house together and the more he's already fallen for essentially before they sleep together but then the second they have and we can start to talk about the end of the film almost is he's having to convince himself that she hasn't done this just to make it make sense in his own head yeah i mean pussy whipped before that was actually known as a thing wasn't it i mean immediately the incredible thing is obviously again it's such a muggy line he gives himself where he goes i'm in love with you already but i'm gonna nail you anyway (laughs) he's kind of that's kind of in his we've just established he's probably not a good guy in his mind i think he's the he is the good guy going look i'm gonna i'm gonna go along with this but eventually i'm gonna bring justice to play and i'm gonna arrest her yeah, when, like, this just isn't going to happen, mate. When me and Sean did Fast Five last week, we had a brief discussion of when some th- things are mentioned in these kind of films, whether the director is in on you laughing or if he's put it in there completely seriously and yet the audience as a collective just finds mm-hmm. this hilarious. And you have that at the end of Fast Five where he says, look, I'll give you 24 hours to escape with whatever you've got there and get as far away as you can but i promise you i am gonna get you i'm gonna get you at the end of this <laughs> don't, you, don't you think we're buddies now he's pretty much yeah well i do love you but that's not gonna stop me being the excellent policeman that i already am killing tourists and i wonder if they did partly think it was going to go down that route of well it is obviously a cat and mouse thing anyway but of the thing of uh look i'm a bit of a loose cannon but i do get results yeah. Which is kind of just not really true. In most cases, the loose cannon isn't a murderer and rapist. I mean, yeah, even even Dirty Harry was... Well, he makes uh, Dirty he, Harry look by the book, by comparison. And he got pulled up on for being a peeping Tom as well, but at least he apologised. He wasn't trying to do that. <laughs> Your man, he is. He's, he, he's uh, put him straight into training day. <laughs> One of the big controversial points that the writers have acknowledged here is that the movie completely ignores DNA as a method of catching criminals. DNA DNA's use in criminal investigations has been in since the mid-1980s. This film right. is set in 1992. Yeah, but I, I do think that's a, a little bit of a rewriting of history. Because when you consider the O.J. Simpson case, is what is that, 93? Is that? And essentially, they're just going with, well, look, okay, DNA says he does it. What's DNA? That's not, that's not anything. And so it's not really trusted at this point. So I do think they're at the same rehashing time, history a little bit. It's, it's joked about in things like uh, South Park. It's joked about in Superbad, actually, where he says, well, look, if every, if every killer just went around leaving semen everywhere, then our jobs would be a lot easier. Um, the fact that... <laughs> She's killed him while having sex with him. I've got to think there's plenty of DNA there that you can pick up on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well look, I mean, if you didn't know... She's been arrested previously as well. Yeah. Yeah. She's, she's writing a, a book on it. Her parents have died in mysterious circumstances. She does her entire aura in that interview. If you didn't know anything about this prior, you'd go, oh, yeah, she's definitely a murderer. <laughs> and yet they're all... It's, again, the most staggering thing ever with any police officer in a film is how determined they all are to not pursue a case. <laughs> no, no, I don't think we'll go after this one. Why? What else have you got going on? 
and it takes someone someone someone's always fired and then he's like you know what i'm still i'm still gonna get to the bottom of this yeah it's always the guy who's the most messed up who's going to decide to pursue it the, the least reliable guy can you just have the steady eddie go you know what no i'm gonna actually take this one not the guy who probably shouldn't be here yeah i mean in fairness gus was right around right around the point of doing it he just happened to know seemingly that someone was going to get him as he comes out of a lift as a father right. facts he's looking right. around desperately <laughs> this is so gus i think is kind of the uh kind of the girl in the horror film where you're like, well, she's obviously dying. I think early on you think, like, Gus is going to, he's fucked. There's no chance he's going to see this out. He's, like you said, probably the nicest guy in there. He's done. Because we've seen the reveal, haven't we? He he gets back to his flat. He sees the final pages of her book being printed out. And as much as all the words aren't there, we see that someone, I think it literally says, is going to come out of an elevator and then the same murder weapon, they're going to be stabbed this Can't is be. honestly the most fundamentally stupid thing he does. And he does some fucking stupid things. He's supposed to be a police officer. And he, he sits in that them. car. I was questioning whether he's told that or whether Curran is in the car knowing that this could happen and then it only clicks in his head as he sees the lift going up. No, this is what I mean, Curran, I mean. I mean, he's yeah, so, so Gus, Gus is suspicious, but he doesn't no, quite know yeah. the end final page no. of the book. Curran literally just lets his teammate just go in there and get murdered. It's, it, it's literally all on him. He's just read this, and it only formulates in his brain whilst he's sat in the car. I just can't comprehend it. Yeah. Um, maybe that a bit of Charlie first, or maybe he'd been drinking. I, I don't yeah, know. He probably has lost a fair amount of brain cells over the course of this thing. It's, oh, I mean, we're obviously not going to go over every... But, Part of the thing with these things is supposed to be like the Maverick is supposed to be really great at his job, but he's got all these other issues. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's yeah. also shit at his job. He doesn't have any ability to deduce anything. The only thing he does work out is from the off that she's a murderer and he gives up on that. He goes, you know what? I'll talk myself out of it, actually. Well, I was going to say, so the little very side, the little kind of side story thing that kind of adds into her character that she basically befriends killers hmm. and then sees the different sides of them. Do you, do you think that really adds much to the story? Like, I feel her character no. is still the exact same, even if you take that bit out. Like, this old woman just popping up every 20 minutes was just weird. Like, it wasn't doing anything for me. I no. wasn't viewing her any differently because of this. If you were looking to trim this film, I think they'd be the first things out, wouldn't they? I don't really know what it added. I think you had enough to her character without needing that to be a thing. Unless you were going to go down the route of this old woman or someone linked to her has been doing this and manipulating it and framing Sharon Stone. They briefly go sort of like a, that she's been framing it. I just don't think that's a thing. No, because, so they, yeah. they, could, they could have cut that easily. It gets to all of these different people that she's visited and they track it back to say about her college class where her college professor was stabbed in the same circumstances and he's going through the roommates and then it gets to the name which I've forgotten who traces this to be... Uh, Dr. Garner, who obviously already knows, and then you've got the question. Um, you didn't really need the side thing. It could be just yeah, yeah. someone was killed in the same circumstances. I'm going to go down. And even if it's just a couple of scenes of him knocking on doors, okay, they're dead or they've moved on. No, I don't want to talk about it. And then he gets to the last one and it's her. And then Tremel says, 
oh, I didn't want to say about her because she was so obsessed with me and she even changed her hair colour the same as me, blah, 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 blah. And we get the same outcome and the same questions. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, that side thing is just a totally irrelevant thing. The whole thing of um, bringing the questions in over Beth is actually a pretty clever thing. But it yeah. just happens so sort of... Uh, so sort of quickly and so kind of late on it's all just there's about 20 minutes left when the question is first posed (laughs) yeah they could have had basically this on the halfway mark probably and that could be a very different film if you're questioning right which of these women are lying they tease it don't they where he Hmm. says okay so you went to school with her what do you know and she's oh i didn't really know her that well uh so and so on he could have even done a what are you not telling me and then get some little dramatic music in there and then you revisit it yeah, yeah, that's it. That, that was the perfect opportunity, wasn't it? That could have been, you know, if they, if they had wanted to flip it on its head, that could have been a really interesting sort of a almost Shutter Island-esque sort of thing. Of, right, you've been watching it through this lens for the whole time, but actually it was this way around. But again, the, the ice pick at the end really does remove any sort, of, any sort of ambiguity that could have been there, I think. Because even with her character dying at the end, She's a perfect foil for Tramel because you have her lusting over Curran and acting quite desperate around him, even when he's saying all these horrible things to her. She keeps coming back and keeps defending him and getting him out of these situations. And then at the other end of the scale, you've got uh, Tramel who has no interest in him. Like She just uses him just to get what she wants. She's using him for a book, as she said she always does. And so you do have the two ends of the scale there. So it works quite well. And then obviously even better when she manages to frame her, which I do have a couple of questions about. Oh, honestly. If, <laughs> if we could believe she plants this evidence at the last minute, <laughs> seemingly, and unless there's another way around it, but a lot of these things, because like the newspaper clippings are just left out on her worktop and all of this kind of thing. So it's not like she's hidden them in that flat for ages. She kills Gus, gets the bloodstained clothes off her, dumps the wig, goes upstairs, dumps the evidence, and gets back out in time to loop back and come see Curran later. Yeah. Very quick feat. Yeah, remarkably so, isn't it? If if an American policeman is ever pointing a gun at you, are you going to be rooting around in your pockets? No, especially not for seemingly with a key ring. (laughs) Yeah. You you know what? (laughs) This doesn't seem (laughs) crucial. It was kind of like they were thinking, well, what could she have been rooting for? Uh, I don't know. Maybe her keys. Maybe that would have been on their mind at that point. Yeah, because even when when you're routine and you don't pull something out, it's never then going to be a gun. Like, that's never going to happen. Yeah. And so you've got this big thing of what's it going to be. And I guess they just choose the most inconsequential thing to really drive home that she didn't need to die. But rooting around silence silently while walking towards someone pointing a gun at you, whether you deserve to die or not, it's... <laughs> It's at the very least, it's... Uh... You made your bed, is that what you're <laughs> yeah. the, uh, the The thing with it is this whole ending screams of if you've ever, like, just had to round off an essay or an assignment or something to get in the work <laughs> yeah. out, or you've got five minutes left, so you do it, because 
they just they just go right. He shot her. He thinks, oh god, I shouldn't have shot her because she didn't have a gun. And then just immediately goes, well, there's evidence in her house that she did it. It does. It looks entirely like it's fresh and planted, but we're just going to go with it. It seems fair enough. And he's bear in mind he's had a prior relationship with this woman, and he has suspected Sharon Stone the entire time. Just, <laughs> it's easy enough to go. Yeah, I'm comfortable with this. It was obviously it was obviously Beth the whole time. Yeah, he grieves for what a couple of hours. I think that's a stretch. I think that's an absolute. I think that's an absolute push. Because <laughs> I mean, sh- slightly shameless plug. The article that I put on the website on Monday. In my conclusion paragraph, I literally said, "I mean, there's plenty more I could say here, and there's plenty more to get into, but I'm not going to be doing that now." So take this ending here effectively and that is almost what they've done here <laughs> there's probably a bit more we could do to unravel this they've gone Sharon, with a, are you, are you a, willing to get your kit off no we've done enough of that all right okay <laughs> there's a murder on the loose please just let sleeping dogs lie look we can't solve everything you just carry on with your lives the final scene the two of them laying in bed you have again i mean Michael Douglas really rarely has to put a shift in because she just <laughs> loves being on top all the she's time. She's doing the work. And she's done the kind of, am I going to grab something, am I not again? Twice, I think. Um, he's got some powers of recovery, Michael Douglas, for an old chap. He thinks this is going on for the rest of his life. <laughs> he's This tension of, am I going to get killed at any point, is going to be for the rest of his life as far as he's aware. That's insane. <laughs> and... The final scene then is they look like they're a happy couple. She goes to reach something again, doesn't grab anything, and then you get a shot of under the bed and the ice pick is there. Don't know why she never got rid of the murder weapon, unless she just has several, because actually I think she leaves one at the scene of the crime, doesn't she, that's bloodied. So she goes out and gets another ice pick just to keep under the bed. You never know. I mean, you never know if it's going to be needed. <laughs> She obviously likes ice in their drinks as well. She's sure she's a natural with that. I can understand that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The uh, yeah, If I come around your house and you've got an ice pick, I'm going to be utterly <laughs> terrified of what he's that, been up to. That's, that's the reason we've got a fridge that does it. You just can't take that chance. <laughs> the, the other, but even if, by the way, and it's insane that he's the only instinctive part of him that is actually working, that she's a killer, has been eradicated supposedly, and he thinks she isn't a murderer now. How does he think he's going to have kids with this woman? He's looking at her going, yeah, we'll just have some rugrats and settle down. Like, she is not going to be doing this. What is? What the hell is going through your head? And he's like, okay, we've got to have kids then. <laughs> this guy. Yeah, because there's, there's not wanting to believe something. And the key part of that is wanting. As in, yeah, you don't yeah, have exactly. the choice in that situation. You can't turn your feelings off. And so it must just be he's he's willing to put up with it. But there isn't even a shot of him kind of like pondering things. So the comparison, and I want to save a lot of it for when we do the film, is you can draw some real comparisons with Gone Girl. And it was a bit weird for me having seen Gone Girl so long and so many more times before I've seen this. Yeah. But you even have similar shots at the end of the film where the two of them are staying together. And you get a shot of Ben Affleck looking very concerned before you get a shot of um, Rosamund Pike and she has the look like okay yeah I could kill him I could do this anytime I wanted to in this is the opposite where 
he is just completely content. <laughs> it's like he thinks he's going to wake up and just read the morning papers with her and just have a, a perfectly normal life. Like, this is not, this is weird. Unless the thing is that they have just never had a conversation about anything normal. Like he's still just living this just thrill seeking ride. But it's a good point. They don't know what each other's interests are. I don't know. Maybe he hasn't discovered the fact that he really doesn't want this for the rest of his life. Just he's yeah, seen just, it with their kids off enough times. Really, you know what? I could, I could deal with this. There's an extra cut of the film where he's just furious. You leave toothpaste in the sink. What the hell is wrong <laughs> with you? No, no, it'll never work out. We're, we're not a good enough match. You, you don't think any part of this ending was because they had the second film in mind at the time, because there was no reports then that it's being set up and i don't know what the sequel is to do with but i'm assuming it's not a direct follow-on so you think it's, it was just a cool way for the director to end it yeah i think so. i think i think it's a really effective ending again quite a iconic sort of ending as well um i think it really works yeah i was just trying to see the plot for the second then because sharon stone does go across again i was gonna say i know she's in it in trouble with the law again at Scotland Yard psychiatrist has to evaluate uh, he's entranced and lured into a seductive game so yeah, we're, basically <laughs> that just, is, we're basically just redoing the we're running show. it back lads whoever that is needs locking up because if you haven't learned your lesson at that <laughs> point and frankly if she goes down the police station again at any point you go lock this woman up there's only so many coincidences we can have yeah Something that I think is interesting with the film is the storyline and a lot of the little things are supposed to be quite delicate. Like they're supposed to be almost like snuck into the plot, like the little things, and that's what goes on. Yeah, but for a film that's supposed to be subtle, almost anything that relates to the plot is completely in your face. Like you can't miss anything in this film. And I've said earlier, the director had to clarify things, but. I think that was just stupidity on the, the audience's part. I don't see how there's any way you can come out of this film having any real confusion. Like, they put the murder weapon in front of you to end the film to say, look, look, this yeah. is who the killer is. Every time someone's killed, it's cut so blatantly in front of your eyes. <laughs> like, you see a guy with a, the, the bullet between his eyes and everything is so right in your face. The only ever contender for a film that does deal in subtleties. Yeah, that's it. I don't know if you'd ever use subtle to describe this film. Which tells you that feels like that's what the plot's supposed to be. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is, isn't it? Well, I guess like like we said that they could have gone down the angle of a more of a whodunit with her and Beth. But the other thing being that everything you said there about it being obvious each time as well, then the only other contender that could have been the murderer is then shown to not have a gun or anything and seemingly is completely innocent. So any doubt should have been removed basically by bookended by how this film starts and how it ends. Everything in between, you can kind of ignore in terms of who did it because I think the start and end of this film kind of show you. I thought it was strange that you do have that one murder with a gun because it just seems out of character for her true so I, I don't know maybe, maybe that is just to give more of the whodunit okay if it was her she'd go with the ice pick because it's nothing to do with her books 
it's nothing to do with like he wasn't on a case so it just feels very uh out of context unless it is just to play him and just to keep getting the reactions out of him which i guess is the case i suppose the whole point of um that roxy dying is kind of pointless other than the fact it potentially shows Sharon Stone quite upset that she died. Yeah. Which is an interesting sort of thing. This kind of sociopathic woman seems to have some sort of feelings, which is interesting. But then <laughs> her character is essentially there just to say that she liked watching. And, oh, by the way, she isn't the only lesbian lover I've had. Otherwise, she just kind of stares, scowling at people. Yeah. And for Michael Douglas to try and mug her off and not really, not really achieve it. So that's, that's really the character where there was the criticism surrounding because they say that character could have been more than that and you've just kind of reduced her. They certainly could have fleshed that out. Absolutely. Better than a flesh with uh, Sharon Stone. <laughs> I'm curious that this is a film that you want to use as a platform for you to be honest i don't know that you need this film to <laughs> yeah. be like no i can champion of my cause in this film i'm not sure that is no, so when did you when did you first see this film i imagine keenan saw it when he was like six but when <laughs> when did you first see it no i i, I saw this film a couple of years ago i don't know three or four maybe probably and did it have the same shock factor that it's intended to have I, yeah, but halfway through the film, I was thinking, like, what the hell is going on? Like, this is all <laughs> yeah. just so, so much going on here. This, but uh, at the same time, you know, when you message me saying it's quite a long film, obviously it's just over two hours, isn't it? I'm yeah. thinking it feels like a. Uh, in my head, I had two hours in my head, but a film that I could fairly sort of quickly watch, and I didn't feel like it was dragging at any point because there's just constant. Not to jump ahead, Con Air felt longer to me. Yeah, that's, yeah, I would probably agree. There's only about ten minutes in it, to be fair. But shall we go on to Conair? Let's do it. Okay, so on June sixth, the federal government will issue the following summer travel advisory. Buckle up. We're going to Disneyland. Yeehaw! This summer. What are you gonna do? I'm gonna skip the day. It's the pro. Let's do it. Versus the con. Strap in, ladies. Going for a night out in Vegas. Of Jerry Bruckheimer, the producer of The Rock. Con Air, directed by Simon West. I'm too old for this. Rated R. Newly paroled ex-con and former U.S. Ranger Cameron Poe finds himself trapped in a prisoner transport plane when the passengers seize control. What do you think the critics thought of this? I think this is going to be uh, very split. I think you're going to have some people going to say, great fun, and some people just trashing it. So the first one is, is the one that really I found myself nodding along with. So... Conair won't win any awards for believability, and all involved seem cheerfully aware of it, making some of this blockbuster out some of this blockbuster action outing's biggest flaws fairly easy to forgive. Yeah, fair. Conair exists as a divisive film because it puts as much attention into being cheesy as it does to being sincere, without ever letting on which tone it actually aims to achieve. <laughs> The saving grace of Con Air is, is its own sense of absurdity. 
Rosenberg and director Simon West seems to know just how preposterous their story is. Yeah. It's exhausting rather than exhilarating. <laughs> and finally, Rosenberg's sarcastic tough guy dialogue is full of lean and mean one-liners and the superbly cast actors know how to milk them for all they're worth. That seems fair. Yeah, that first thing to touch on here, this is like the eccentricity Hall of Fame. Nick Cage, <laughs> Steve Buscemi, John Malkovich, Danny Trejo, Dave Chappelle. It's Who's like, that? if you went through a school, yeah, just picking out like the weird kid in each class. <laughs> that's essentially your boarding, your boarding list for this plane. Incredible. <laughs> And it's, 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 it's very well done. So if we start with Nicolas Cage, is it fair to say that he's maybe the least eccentric character, least eccentric main character in this film? Like when I heard about Definitely. the fact that it's like a cult classic Nick Cage, I expected him to just be the most wild character in this film. He's the straight man. Yeah, it's, it's very weird. and It almost like... It feels right. It doesn't feel wrong. <laughs> you kind of, that's why I said it in such a way that I'm almost questioning am I missing something? Because if you take the accent out of it, it's just a normal bloke. Well, the, the thing is, he obviously, we know he can do serious roles and he's a good actor. And I think probably because of what's gone on with him since this time, we probably take him slightly less seriously. But at this point, I think you. You know, you, you would have said this is probably fairly more on brand for it. Well, if I could jump in slightly, Con Air and Face Off are released within three weeks apart at the cinemas. I mean, what a year for him. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then, yeah, that's it. Well, Maybe he's up, showing a bit of rage. This is why though, he's supposed to do Superman after this. Right. Falls through with Tim Burton. That's wild. Is it Tim Burton? That feels wrong now I've said it. It feels like it would be a very, very, very weird film, but I don't know. You well, there's literally that. pictures of him in the suit. Um, oh, right. Like, it went that far down the line. Yeah, it was Tim Burton. Okay. And he's got the long hair as Superman. Jeez. So, yeah, all in. Um, yeah, this is this is as big as, I guess... He ever is. These two back to back, both smashes. Mm. Even with this, when he's a normal character, just the shots of him with like his hair flowing in the wind. We've been critical of accents before. <laughs> this is maybe the worst Alabama accent I've ever heard. It's more just how, how it sort of fluctuates. It's mainly the well, issue. It, he kind of just quits at times. You have the the start of the film when he's got back from uh, the military and he's just got a normal voice and then you, you flash forward when he's in prison and suddenly <laughs> he's just like full hillbilly yeah yeah he, he does seem indecisive at best him saying put the bunny back in the box in that weird accent <laughs> we look at the start of that film for a start, I think any film that involves going to war, someone should be singing that song from King Arthur. That should just be like 
a uniform thing across <laughs> Lucy. You have come home if you want to remix it. Those awful guys harassing him. <laughs> it's because of pussies like you that we lost Vietnam. Incredible. I mean, late nighters, and they're going on about Vietnam. <laughs> <laughs> and he's taking it real personal. And then we set up his character with his wife doing the, look, I thought you were going to go back to being that guy again. Yeah, like he's she... the major. <laughs> yeah, and these guys have basically confronted him and her at a bar, and he's, yeah. oh, you, you're a bad guy because you nearly responded to it. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes, no me. Yeah, we, we then get a fight in the rain, which anyone that listens to this podcast, my absolute favourite, any fight scene you have, put it in the rain. It's going up in my estimations. Nick Cage just goes full mob deep. <laughs> Rock you in the face, jab your brain with your nose bone. The guy's <laughs> just slumped. And then the fact he does that kick onto the pipe later in the film, he's the most efficient killer in the history of film. Yeah, his his hands are lethal weapons and feet. It, it's like it's like two shots and every guy's down. <laughs> he's he's got like the setup shot and then the haymaker. He carries power, and which is appropriate because yeah. much like much like Tony Bellew, he just wants to get home to his wife and kid. <laughs> this whole film is all he wants. I, I love the fact in films that you can't specify time without something like growing a long head of hair. Maybe you give someone a scar, some glasses. Like, you can't look the same six or seven years later and will believe it. You have to have gone through some kind of look change. And in this case, it's just never cutting his hair again. In this case, he's not really, it's not even that long a period of time. And he's right, long hair it is then. Fuck it. I mean, his wife still looks the same. If anything, the makeup they give her, I thought she looked younger by the end of the film. <laughs> yeah. She's lost that uh pregnancy glow. Yeah, he's he's supposedly has to age about twenty years and she does look <laughs> like she's no different. Um the the casting of this film, Nicolas Cage aside, so Willem Dafoe and Mickey Rourke both auditioned for the part of Cyrus. Nice. Do you during Mickey Rourke's audition, he improvised by producing a razor-sharp Bowie knife, both terrifying and impressing the director. <laughs> so suitably impressed, they decided to cast John Malkovich instead. So, Mickey, we've gone for the guy who didn't bring a knife. Uh, <laughs> don't take it personally. First choice for the role was Robert Downey Jr. No, no, sorry. First choice for the role was Gary Oldman. Okay. Robert Downey Jr., Charlie Sheen, and Matthew Broderick were considered for the part of Vince Larkin. Yeah, okay. That one's fair. The, I think they got it right with Malkovich, just in terms of, as I'm sure we're going to speak with the other ones, it's not a film that takes itself too seriously. So no. I do you think some of those actors wouldn't have been as good as, as he is for that? Yeah, it's very good. Um I quite like Matthew Broderick in the Cusack role. Charlie Sheen, not sure. And I'm a big Charlie Sheen guy up till, <laughs> up till he finished Two and a Half Men. Um, Danny Jr., don't like it. Don't like it at all. Not having it. 
Danny Jr., you can put it as the guy like opposing him, and I'll buy it more. But Danny Jr. playing the straight down the line cop just doesn't really work for me. Okay. He does it in um, U.S. Marshals, where he's supposed to be that similar kind of character. Right. And even it feels like as much as we're being told this is like a good guy cop who plays by the rules, um, it just doesn't feel right. You're kind of waiting for the character to do something. And then I think it kind of plays away from the guys opposite who are supposed to be the breaking the rules guys. So I think John Cusack's a... He doesn't rape his therapist. Oh, (laughs) you're not committed enough to the role. Me and Keenan did it when we did uh, Gross Point Blank, I think. And we were trying to find the nice way to say that John Cusack just looks completely normal. He looks ordinary. He looks like your average guy. And so that works well for this position. Yeah, definitely. In terms of the villains, it's quite unbelievable how the crew manages to cover every possible aspect of evil doing. <laughs> like there is no that, part of villainy left untouched. Feels very much there was a checklist and they've got right sick. Did you get yeah. the rapist in? Yeah, yeah, we got we got the rapist. Yeah, we yeah, got, we got Danny Trejo was Johnny twenty three who says really you should call me Johnny six hundred if that you know is how many. <laughs> one of the most staggering characters <laughs> in a film. That is just casually just thrown out how prolific a rapist he is and that he's going to do it on the plane by the way and that's that's before Treo has gone for like machete Treo. Mm. uh dave chappelle as pinball the con artist you've got diamond dog who's like uh i don't know the white where he's he's like uh like a, they like, a call him like a leader of black union or something like black that nationalist or something isn't it it's basically a yeah. fundamentalist isn't it I had black supremacist in my head, and I was like, that's absolutely not right. <laughs> Maybe. It's, 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 yeah, same sort of fashion. Um, Steve Buscemi as the Hannibal Lecter-esque psycho killer. We're unclear on all of his crimes exactly. We just know he rode around with a young girl's head. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to need you to make me feel better about the Steve Buscemi character. <laughs> because well, I'm, I'm, I'm conflicted a, on A couple of things I... about that. So <laughs> we'll mention that in a minute. Um, and you've got the kind of evil mastermind Cyrus the Virus, um, John Markovich. Great name. He he holds a pistol to a plush rabbit and even looks menacing doing that. Like you're threatened for the <laughs> rabbit in that instance. He's saying, "Don't make me do it." Yeah, this is a great character. Some of his lines are phenomenal. I mean, I, I didn't get the name of the character. There's a guy later on, the guy that shoots Nicolas Cage in the arm. I swore I swore it was John Hartson briefly. <laughs> that would be incredible like he just came across and he just shoots Nick Cage in the arm who just doesn't flinch at all yeah that is just get on with it that is one of the most outrageous ones where it's just like this bullet has just gone through him and yeah, there's no real question he's just got a few trickles of blood at the end of the film where they seem confused that his daughter doesn't immediately want to just hug him as he's covered in blood and dirt and grub and <laughs> god knows what else That's- just an introduction to you, Daddy's been in prison for yeah. the first what, eight years of her life, whatever it is. Yeah, remarkable. Before we go through the scenes, <laughs> as much as we've said some of the actors are were perfect for it, John Malkovich was unhappy from the get-go. He said he hated the production because <laughs> every day he turned up and the script was just being rewritten. 
he said he, <laughs> he, he likes to be able to kind of flesh out his character. And how could he do that if he never knew how his character was going to turn out? Yeah, you, you don't question that they were rewriting it constantly for a minute. That seems perfectly uh, explainable. Yeah. Uh, John Cusack says he considers Conair to be a bad movie and hated the time he spent working on it so much that he barely remembers it. He says he only did it because of the money and to, <laughs> use, and to use his leverage in order to make his own indie passion project. Yeah, I have seen that some of the characters have uh, disassociated himself a bit, which makes me sad. Yeah, John Malkovich hates the film. Um, he was on the Graham Norton show in 2015, and Samuel L. Jackson said of Malkovich, John's never made a bad movie, to which he replied, clearly you've never seen Con Air. Oh, that hurts. That's like a dagger. They asked him during the press tour what his inspiration was for the film, and he, he said one word, money. <laughs> no one's even shying away from why they did this film. It, Remarkable saw... that he sat, he sat on the sofa with Samuel Jackson, who's done Snakes on a Plane, and he <laughs> considers Con Air to be yeah. shit. I saw it described as a B-movie with A-list actors. Doesn't seem unfair, really. And I guess you're literally basing that on the premise, really. But the very thing that is kind of upsetting post-film, when they're basically all saying how shit it is, whatever, but they all kind of lean into the fact that it's a bit shit and they're having fun with it in the film. So it's a weird thing that I'm glad they did, so they didn't take it too seriously and they had some fun with it as well as some of the more violent aspects. But it is a bit weird that then post-film, they're like, yeah, God, that was garbage. Because I think the very fact that it isn't, you know, The Godfather is yeah. probably why it works. I, I think it should be a cause for reflection for a lot of these actors because I think for several of them, it would be the movie you would get if you said to them, make the movie you want to make. And Yeah, true. I think it's easy to blame it when it's someone else, but it, I mean, Nicolas Cage hasn't come out and criticised it, but in terms of just... <laughs> Nicolas Cage has got too many to pick from. <laughs> no, 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 I can't. Come in on, terms man. of just the complete freedom, I've got to think for Malkovich, I can't imagine he was being told no much on the set of this film. I was going to say, I'm sure you have plenty of freedom. Cusack's probably just got it that he wasn't in the mix of it with uh, Malkovich, Ving Rhames, Buscemi. I've never seen Buscemi come out and slate it, so there we go. I think, uh, I believe Dave Chappelle just basically just did his own thing for his character as well. I don't think they yeah. actually gave him anything. He he says they barely gave him lines. He said yeah. almost every word is improvised on his part. So Incredible. he got himself more lines than what he should have had. Forgot just how good he is in this as well. Love his character in this. What's one of his introductions where he says, um, you, you smell like someone shit in your mouth or something. And he's, so he said good. he loved it. <laughs> his body just being chucked from several several hundred feet in the air, several thousand feet in the air. Imagine how haunted you'd be by that falling on your car. <laughs> They're traumatised for life. They're never getting over that. Yeah. Um, before we go through it, because I, I'll, I'll ask you this now while I've uh, got it fresh in my head. I saw this described today as the most rewatchable action movie of all time. And I wondered which film popped into your head when I give you that description. Oh, blimey. It feels a li- like Die Hard feels a bit obvious. 
but well, no, for whatever first comes in draft. Die Hard Three was. I I took down three, and I took down the, literally the first three that came to mind for me. Yeah, I, I, Die Hard probably instinctively, but with just even just a little bit more thinking, I consider films like The Last Boy Scout as a very easy yeah. rewatch. Something like that. Uh, something that's kind of a bit fun. Yeah, not sure. Outside of those, trying to think of action films that we. Because this, yeah, this will be because it's good fun. This, it's not. A, yeah. There's nothing too, uh, too taxing. What, what else did you have? I took down Die Hard Three, Taken, and The Raid, and Taken was probably the first one for me. If I okay. was given two minutes and I had to put whichever film was still in my head after the two minutes, I think Taken would be the one. It's got a shorter runtime than the others. Keenan describing it as one of the what felt like the longest films he's had to watch is still baffling to me. The issue with Taken is it is a prime example of what, the damage you can do to your brand if you do do too many. Yeah, I remember yeah. that when that first one came people were mad for it. People were calling it like their favourite film ever, weren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, for, for me, when I read the synopsis for Con Air, I thought it was going to be a lot like the Liam Neeson on a plane film, basically. Right, okay. And literally from just a synopsis I saw, I thought it was like some convicts on a regular plane and they were going to be, you are going to have that back and forth there. And so in my assumption was that Nicolas Cage was going to be a good guy on the plane fighting back against these convicts. Which if they want to make that film now... <laughs> Wesley Snipes did that. What's it called? Uh, is that Passenger 57, I think? Yeah, yeah, there's a lot like that's a That's a really good version of that type of film, of like, a bit more serious and he's saving the day sort of thing. Whereas the tone of this, you must have been sort of like, okay, this was not what I thought I was signing up for. There was a bit more pressure put on it, admittedly, because I put the poll up on Twitter this week and just said, look, watching these two films for the first time this week, not seen either, which is better? And... The first, like, three people, it was 100% to Basic Instinct. And I thought, oh, God, what kind of film am I saying? <laughs> and then it just shot up, and people were just going, Conair, 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 driving it. And then a couple of people replied saying, but how can you even consider Basic Instinct against Conair? Conair is brilliant. And I thought, oh, God, that's not good. That's, like, the worst thing someone can tell you before you watch a film is how good it is. Uh, create that, that pressure. Um but I guess with Nicolas Cage, I always had a level of expectation for the kind of film it was. And I didn't even know. At the point when you text me saying, uh, something on the lines of, uh, with Cage and, or with Malkovich and Buscemi, it was going to have to do something pretty bad or whatever it was. I hadn't actually seen Steve Buscemi yet. So I was kind of questioning. I've, have, I seen, have I seen him? I forgot how late was you like five minutes actually. later. Yeah, yeah. I said, Chappelle, with Chappelle and Buscemi, they'd have to do something horribly wrong for me to not like it. Yeah, that's both, it. Both those guys are top draw. So if I'd even seen a 100-word synopsis, then I think you pretty much get what you would be reading there, and that's not a sense of criticism at all. I think with this, you get exactly the film you want to see if you want to see a Nicolas Cage film or so on and so on. Um mm bit cheesy to start with and i think as that review said start with yeah but i mean it's like right from the jump it's so it's Mm. and the fact that they do lean into it early just showing you this is the type of film you're going to have because the worst is when they're ambiguous with the tone 
and so you're deadly serious one minute and then you have a moment like am i supposed to laugh yeah yeah and with this it almost just puts you at ease early like there's no pressure to be on the edge of your seat there's no it's just enjoy the explosions i think we're we get a car chase or what you could call it like your car chase scene at the end the end is just fire and explosions they just go right whatever we got left on the budget we're just blowing everything up <laughs> yeah. at this point. we just need fire and explosions palace is just taking the lead against everton by the way well, not done much for the table um Buscemi's character. Now, when I was noting down each of the crimes for these, do you think it's kind of an intentional thing because they reel off Buscemi's character as essentially being like the worst criminal of the lot? Yeah. And that's on a plane where there's Johnny 600. (laughs) And so you think it's then almost a conscious decision to make him he's like the second most ordinary person on the plane before he starts singing when it's going down like everything he says is like perfectly logical and reasonable and understanding yeah it's weird they've kind of uh treated him like he's hannibal lecter in terms of they've almost like referenced him talked about him and then obviously the sort of the kind of muzzle thing over his face whatever and the way they look at him is very much like he's totally different and then it was almost like they didn't realise what they had because Steve Buscemi starts talking. Yeah, you know, okay, this guy's kind of interesting, reasonable compared to everybody else in this fucking plane. You think part of that is you have a level of expectation when it's Steve Buscemi, so you also you almost don't need to build a character there because it being Steve Buscemi builds a certain amount of that for you. So you've got that quirkiness already, whether you explain why he's that way or not. So you save yourself five minutes and I guess almost not explaining it makes it weirder. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, given just a uh, some ambiguity to his background and stuff, I guess. Because no matter, who, no matter what, what he's in, um, I've seen him in The Sopranos to Spy Kids 2. <laughs> and he has that same kind of weird energy around him regardless of what he's in. And so it, it just fits perfectly into this. It's like if you had this cast of people and then you had a lineup, I don't care who else is on that list, Steve Buscemi is the one you're going to be picking out to add to fit most seamlessly in with the rest of them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. His things are, aren't they? Just, it's how much on his scale is he going to lean more towards the funny element or more towards the darker, creepier element? There's always going to be that little bit of both. And it's just dependent on which way he goes with it, is really it. And his character in this has got a kind of odd sort of charisma to it. I think you can't help kind of like him, and which is really difficult because obviously you know he's a circle. And that bit with the girl, it's all yeah. just a little bit. You're like, where is this going? This is a bit. When odd. when you read anything about it, it's it's like a massive thing in people's viewing of the film. Like he didn't eat the kid. <laughs> like it's, he's a changed man. We can like this character now because he didn't kill the kid. Yeah, is this supposed to be heartwarming? It's like, oh, well, he's reformed. I, By the way, I, no way he is either. He's definitely going to no. kill him rampage. I noted down a question while watching the film, and I put down, do you think when they started filming, you had the ending with Buscemi still like on the Las Vegas Strip gambling, or do you think the character came across more likable than they thought, and they added that into the ending? 
because it's not like a it's not twist. Needed. It's not something <laughs> like that. It, it's almost just like it's almost like fan service at that point. Yeah, yeah, I think. Well, the sound of it, they were rewriting constantly throughout the whole time. So anything is anything is possible. I imagine they've had it late on realizing that this guy came across quite well. So we've got to do something with him. Maybe potentially. I don't know whether we're thinking of this in too modern a way now. If they thought it was going to be a sequel or something, whether he could kickstart that. I'm still talking know. about it now. <laughs> yeah. The final scene was going to be in a, in a location far more destitute as well. And then they find out on a news report, I think, that the hotel that the end bit shot at is going to be demolished. And the director immediately gets on the phone and says, you've got to let us film around it while you're demolishing it. And right. they're almost at a point where... Vegas are always going to let you do whatever as long as the money's coming in. <laughs> and so they get to film this this whole scene up and down the Vegas strip right in front of a hotel that's being smashed to pieces with all the rubble and things. And they just get this big climatic scene because at, before they get back on the plane the second time after they've bumped into uh, Cusack, you almost feel like you're coming to the ending of the film then and then you get like this second wind <laughs> where it's got, it's, it's got one last kick in it. Yeah. Where it just goes up a notch again. You've got the plane firing at the other one. You've got the don't shoot and the standard like army guy who just wants to just kill everyone and <laughs> blow everything up. Ignoring all sound advice from Kuzak. Just go, yeah. no, no, I'm going to do my own thing actually. And then you take the plane down. You've got the plane like crash landing and then you get into this chase where you've got them fighting on the top of a fire engine and then you've got that fire engine plowing into explosives and then you've got Malkovich coming off that explosion underneath just this giant machine that's going to just squash his head to pieces it's like they saw how much budget they had left and was yeah. like what the hell can we do with the rest of this it entirely was we've got, we've got X amount of budget Football manager, you just signed a striker for hundred million pounds. <laughs> yeah. You don't need him. He's going, well, look, I've got the money here. I'm not going to not spend it, am I? And it's all the better for it because, as we've said, we're not looking to this film to be cohesive. We're not looking to this film to make sense, and it makes about as much sense as it can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like they, they have no right to not suspect Nicholas Cage's character before this. Like he should have been outed far quicker. Yeah, I mean he's quite he's quite clearly uh just different to everyone else. Kind of no everyone else's crimes are sort of famous on there. And you can't really know anything about this guy. And and yeah, and so as soon as you're sort of oh, how, how can I put it? As soon as the question is asked, like right, who could be a rat or whatever, he should be immediate on there as well. Well this this comes out two and a half years after speed. And with speed, you have the thing, don't you, where the bus comes to a halt, you think the movie's coming to a, to an end, and then you get the bus explosion, and then you get on the tube, and they have the fight on the tube, and then you have the tube <laughs> exploding out of the station. And they do a very similar thing there, where it's like, you thought you were finished, you thought you were getting your shoes on to leave the cinema, kick them back off, because <laughs> we're not finished with you. And it is, a, it is a great thing to do. You obviously bank on your audience enjoying the film at that point and wanting more. It's like the equivalent of an encore, really. Yeah, yeah, it is. They uh, maybe the most iconic scene from the thing with the um, Lynn Skinner Sweet Home Alabama playing comes right at the end of these things. Is yeah. that, well, and so that probably uh, 
one of your probably abiding memories of this film is done. It's like you said at the time, you maybe thought, right, we're done here. It's coming to an end. And the critics probably looking oh, just more critical of a basic instinct than this when one, at least in my head, feels far more critically acclaimed. On IMDb alone, you scroll down, it's got a 6.9 rating, which just being a 6 feels so much worse than when it's like a 7.1. <laughs> you scroll down to where it's got the user reviews and it's like 9 out of 10, that's what I'm talking about. 10 out of 10, classic Nick Cage, 8 out of 10, 7 out of 10, 8 out of 10. You do really reflect sometimes where people do just want simplicity sometimes. We do just want to see things blow up and guns firing. And yeah, and there's some real good like uh dialogue in it. The one liners are great. That do you think the one, is great? The one liners, you almost have to get the first cheesy one out, and then you've got this moment where as an audience you go over uh or Oh, oh, like you're you're in on the yeah. joke. You're in on the cheesiness of it. You set the tone. Set the little things up. like uh, when he says Sai and he says Onara as he's flicking the match. Oh, God. <laughs> oh. So frequently in this film, there's someone that just happens to be stood around waiting to be set on fire. <laughs> yeah. Deja Power was able to get, <laughs> store this in his mouth. And then set someone on fire. Incredible. Yeah, there's, there, there's some of the one lines you said. On any other day, that might seem strange. There's no medicine for what I have. Cameron's glad one. Glad if you didn't one. shoot it down. Oh, yeah, better this way. <laughs> there's only two men I trust. One of them's me, the other's not you. That line, by the way, later on when he goes, uh, there's now three men I trust. Because it asks, am I one of them? Yeah, obviously he's talking about you. What else is he going to be talking about? <laughs> he doesn't have much self-worth. <laughs> I, I I took down as well um, Cyrus when he speaks to uh, Johnny23 and he does just let him know I despise race, uh, rapists. He is racist about two minutes later, so that was... That was yeah. That's put in the film as a kind of like look, this isn't just your average bad guy. This is like an intelligent bad guy. Yeah. Like, he's got a bit more about him. Really, yeah, just really... Said he despises a bloke that has just bragged about raping 600 women, at least. He just doesn't have the tattoo space. Yeah, I don't think any of us are going, well, oh, this guy's quite moral, isn't he? He doesn't like it. It is quite, it is quite laughable. That's where he's drawing the line, though. He's basically celebrating every crime and then, rapist, you're disgusted. I was just having a look down at some of the other quotes. Uh, Sunsets are beautiful. Newborn babies are beautiful. This is fucking spectacular. Hashem is defying irony. A bunch of idiots dance on a plane to a song made famous <laughs> yeah. by a band that died in a plane crash. Yeah. Have you seen the latest Suicide Squad? No. So they pay uh, homage. Well, I don't know if that's the right word. Um or whether it's intentional or not, to the scene where they kind of run through the criminals in this. And they do it in a far more 2022 way where they say, this is blah, blah, blah. His crimes include X, Y, Z. But you have these big letters coming up with the characters' names to make sure you don't forget them. And then in this, it's like Cyrus the Virus. You're going to remember that. Don't need to put it right in front of your face. 
Yeah, yeah. Mad Dog. You're going to remember this. And it just shows that you can just do it so much simpler and so much better. Because if they're not paying homage later on in 2022, they're ripping it off. So it's one of the two. Yeah, 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 definitely. And the one is is, is done much better than the other. Let's face it, this whole thing, there is very little explanation really often for anything. Like, there's not really much explanation as to why they're doing the whole thing. They have to transfer these criminals. Why you got some of the most dangerous criminals ever on a plane that's fairly under-equipped. Guns? No, no, no. No, no we'll be taking guns on here, thank you. The whole they have thing, no pictures know. of the prisoners that they're waiting for on the other end. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So when they they manage to get on the plane three separate occasions while whilst being followed without any issues. They again, say, a bad uh, look for the a bad look for the authorities once again. Larkin says, like halfway through the film, he's like, "If you can't trust a South American drug lord, then who can you trust?" I mean, it's great that he has that self awareness now. Early on in the film, he refers to it as a well-oiled machine. And then when they're putting, like, turning the screw on him, he goes, contingency plans for something like this don't exist. This has never been contemplated. Why hasn't it been contemplated? I think them escaping this plane should definitely be, there should be a contingency <laughs> plan for this group of highly dangerous criminals. Yeah, it made perfect sense. Um, I don't really know... How else, to, how else to describe it? It's one of them, and we've done it previously on here, where we've said the more you describe it, the more it sounds like you're almost just picking the film apart when you're not. It's just like these things that sound like criticism sometimes are what we do enjoy about oh, the film. <laughs> the plot is entirely flawed, and that's kind of what makes it so fun. Yeah, just, there's, there's so many quotables. I mean, we could be here all day. Who's your favourite of the of the characters? If If I just say from the villains... It's tricky, isn't it? Because Chappelle goes out of it too early, really, which is a shame. His uh, pound for pound, it would be Chappelle. Um, I probably I like Buscemi, but Malkovich probably does steal it. He's Cyrus so the virus is brilliant. Yeah, yeah, I I would agree. I've just looking back down the list, stumbled across uh, Johnny Twenty Three saying, "When you wake up, Bishop, I'll be Johnny Twenty Four. Oh, Jesus, God. <laughs> he is haunting. <laughs> Yeah, Danny Trejo has got into character a bit too easily for that. <laughs> and they're all having to hold him back like some sort of like dog. Like, no, no, there's not going to be any rape <laughs> on this plane, thank you. He says to him, if your dick flies out of your pants, then you'll be flying off this plane. This group of like psychopaths are all collectively like, no, no, this is too far. You're going too far here. I, I wish we got more fight scenes because... Uh... Nicholas Cage pulls off a roundhouse kick in the middle of yeah. this that just comes out of nowhere. <laughs> Incredible. We don't get more uh, fights because everyone's just seen him killing people with one <laughs> shot. They go, no, I don't want any of it. <laughs> well, we've said before, like, you, no one wants to be that one guy where, like, you, you punch someone once and suddenly yeah. you just caught them in the wrong place, hit the head in the wrong Smashed place. Smashed right on the curb. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Nicholas Cage isn't helping with that worry. You need one of those. Um, <laughs> Muay Thai refs where they just put like the pillows under their head when they're falling or they catch them on the way down and in his case as well he's got such a brutal sort of yeah yeah you're going to jail for this amount of times like, you couldn't have been more obvious of like pro being provoked of doing this and that <laughs> no no we're throwing the book at you sorry 
he was doing the uh, he was doing the uh, crucible thing at first i won't say i'm guilty not in my name you're not taking me down and then two seconds later he's pleading guilty and he's down for eight to ten yeah i think at that stage you should have just gone long not guilty they can't do much worse to you at that point as I'm sure she doesn't understand much of it, what an awful birthday his daughter has. She literally spends the day going between various, like, policemen being spoken to by them, waiting for her dad to come, and eventually when they, when they do, she's just stood around on the Las Vegas Strip watching this carnage unfold. It's the worst birthday she could ever have, because at this point, she doesn't even like her dad. She has no feelings towards him. She's never met him. Yeah, he's, she, he's not been present for her first seven birthdays. And he's ruined this one. He's made it all about him. And he could have got off that fucking plane. And he got, no, no, I'm staying on. If I pose this question to you, are the problems in basic instinct solved quicker with the police force from Conair or are the problems <laughs> in Conair solved quicker with the police force from basic instinct? I think if the police officers from basic instinct were in charge of Connor. We'd probably had an international terrorist incident. Does Curran not just shoot that plane down immediately? <laughs> it's like a 20-minute film. Maybe, but we probably have the rest of the department all telling him, no, no, we won't do anything about it. And him just off his nut going, no, 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 we got it, we got to do it. And probably nothing gets done. Sharon Stone just traumatising Johnny 23. <laughs> keeps him alive <laughs> that would be a, the best bit of justice in, in any film ever her murdering him Larkin is, has some, some ability so he would basically in basic instinct he would solve this he would crack it <laughs> yeah. so he's the only one of any authority figure in even these films that shows some semblance of competence does Everyone he get charmed else, by Sharon Stone? I think he's too straight laced I think he's, he keeps his head on Oh, I think that's a big ask in those shoes. Oh, look, it's tough. It is absolutely <laughs> tough, and I'm, I'm backing him, all right? Well, I'm not even sure Cusack's agreeing there. That is one of the things with um, Basic Instinct. For all the criticisms that you do give Curran, there's a part of you where it's like, you're an awful bloke, and that's what I'm holding against you here. For the, the rest of it, I kind of understand i kind of understand a lot of this i think if you take out and it's quite significant if you take out <laughs> the sexual assault is very you go look this guy is a wreck but i can see how this all happens that not so much i thought you were about to say if you take out the killing she's quite a catch so either one um probably does make I think sense. with the killing she's quite a catch yeah yeah as he as he does uh he's willing to kill the, the woman that helped him get over his wife's suicide. <laughs> Just one, one extra go in those cheeks. <laughs> More than happy to then throw her to the dogs as well. Just remarkable. Yeah. Um, shall we go on to the judging? Let's do it. Load this up. Okay. Which film did you prefer? That's tough. I think Con Ed just, but that's it was really close. I prefer Basic Instinct. Okay. Which do you think's more rewatchable? I think Con Ed's more rewatchable. Agree. 
what do you think is the best moment slash scene? I think the uh, the interrogation of Sharon Stone. For me. You said it. Is are you calling that the best moment or the best scene? <laughs> best scene. <laughs> uh, best quote. Best quote. Quote. I do think that Steve Buscemi define irony one. You could say pretty much anything Chappelle says, but I'll go with the Steve Buscemi define irony one. I enjoyed Sai Onara far more than I <laughs> wish I had. Oh God, so cheesy. Um. MVP. Sharon Stone. Yeah, I agree. Or Tramel. Best side character. Chappelle Cowan as a side character? Yeah, he does, yeah. I guess Bashemi probably does as well, doesn't he? Yeah. I'm going with Gus, by the way. I thought you might. I'm riding with Gus. I felt I felt I felt bad for him when he was down. I I mean, if we say that he didn't grieve for uh, the doctor, he definitely didn't grieve for Gus. <laughs> yeah. If, I, if it wasn't for the fact that he's got a lot of demons, I'd say he seems able to bounce back from things very quickly. Doesn't, <laughs> does current. No, I think either of well, those, I think probably Bashemi. Probably. Yes, yeah, another line in him and he's good to go. <laughs> or. He just never, he just never gets post that clarity. He just gets back on the wagon every time. And he, <laughs> he just never sees full clarity again. That's what he meant by for the rest of our lives. Which film had you more on the edge of your seat? Basic Instinct. Which film had more action per minute? I mean, sexual action. The Basic Instinct was, <laughs> per minute is unbelievable. Um, yeah, con- con- I mean, the yeah. ending of it, I guess, alone could seal that. Yeah, I agree. Uh, best soundtrack? Connor? Agreed. Originality? Hmm. I guess there has been a fi- Situations like the Basic Instinct one, I guess there's the cat and mouse thing, I guess there is, so I'll go with Connor, but not with any great conviction. No, I'm, I'm going with Basic Instinct. I don't think either are particularly original. I think largely I've seen more Conairs than I've seen Basic Instinct. Yeah, yeah. That's probably, as we said, the death of the, the, death of the erotic thriller. <laughs> Bigger impact. Basic Instinct, surely. Yeah. Best opening scene? Basic Instinct, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, best ending? Basic Instinct again. Yeah, I agree. And best chemistry? The Connor, there, there is good chemistry between the uh, Sydney the Criminals and Connor. I do like it. Um, but... For all the obviously some issues between Michael Douglas and Sharon Stone, their chemistry is unbelievable. It does basically you know carry that film yeah. a lot. So I'm going to go with Basic Instinct again. Yeah, the chemistry for um, 
Conair, I guess we just see a lot less of it because they're gradually just killing each other off as the film goes through. <laughs> and Markovic kind of turns into a lone ranger by the end of it. So. so it's 7-4 to Basic Instincts in the end, which is closer than we've had for a fair few weeks. I thought it was probably a close matchup. So Basic Instinct goes through. I don't know if Keenan's seen that. He's not actually answered... Uh, my messages as to whether he has or not so whether he watches that before the next round we'll find out next week it is oceans 11 versus dog day afternoon my first time seeing oceans 11 oh yeah forgot you haven't seen the oceans film yeah. uh free to jump on next week if uh, you're particularly passionate about oceans 11 sean has already dropped out um <laughs> But, he's a big fan of oceans yeah he well. said he is he tried uh, changing the day on us um and me and keenan can't do a separate day so keenan will be back next week so there we go thank you again for joining in we'll be back on monday with our end of season premier league review if all goes to plan we'll have a number of guests much like we did for the start of the season and yeah then you can find us End of next week, movie madness again. See you then. Goodbye.